Another dominant Mark Marquez performance at the Saxon Ring. Only one word to describe it. Nice. Welcome to episode 69 of Bike Life. Let's go! Yes, welcome everyone. This is episode 69 of Bike Live, and it's a warm welcome to our review of the German Grand Prix that's we carried at the Saxon Ring. Um, and if you've been reading any kind of form book concerning MotoGP, you'll already know what's happened. It's another dominant Mark Marquez showing as he took his ninth win from his ninth pole position in as many years at the Saxon Ring. Uh, we'll talk all about how he did it. Uh, and what it means for the World Championship as he moves 46 points clear of number 46. Valentino Rossi taking second um, as he learned from a MotoGP rookie uh, on his way to doing it. We'll discuss his result. We'll discuss Maverick Vidalis completing Mauricio Yamaha's best result of the year. Um, pointer as well. It's the last time this year, for this year, the last time we could describe them as Movistar Yamaha. More on that in the news. Mm. Uh, we'll discuss a first-time winner in Moto2. Three potential maiden winners disputed it. Brad Binder won it. Uh, and we'll discuss the Moto3 Championship battle, which took another twist at the Saxon Ring, as Jorge Martin beat Bezeki again, whilst the other three title contenders all tripped up. Um, we'll also discuss the big world superbike news. Tom Sykes is out of Kawasaki. That is now official. Alex Lowe's and Vandermark very much staying put for 2019. Uh, and we'll look at this weekend as BSB heads for its second of three rounds at Brandsatch and its first around the GP circuit. Um, joining me for that and for the entire show is a man who has seen British Superbikes around the Brand Search GP circuit. That's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. I have live experience of this. Also, I'm breaking out the world's smallest violin for our co-host as Tom Sykes leaves Kawasaki. It's, uh, it's a sad time for all involved. Follow him on Twitter at LewisSudderby23 and give him a hug from me. Yeah. Um, it's my it's my gift to you, Lewis. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, so, so, um, so that's what I get for all these hours of slaving away editing podcasts. Yeah, that's the same. When, when I when, when you initially said that, I thought you were referring to the uh, the drunken stupor that Rebecca James is about to uh, drink herself into um, at, <laughs> at the at the Principality Stadium this weekend, where of course the uh, British Grand Prix Speedway is taking place um on uh, saturday night by the time you're hearing this it will have happened it will be probably last night as you're hearing this um ty Wofferden going for his first ever home gp win uh also follow at uh, beck underscore j93 for rebecca james on twitter and just look at the state of the uh the, was it the bathtub uh, dre that she it, it, was uh it's, 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 it's copious amounts of alcohol in the bathtub um and to which i to which I joked and said, what do you need all that lemonade in there for? Mm. Um, uh, but I've never seen a bathtub of keeping cold alcohol before. Like, that is, like, ingenious. I, I, I have, but I've only ever seen it on New Year's Eve. Ah, kind uh, of says it, it already, doesn't it? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, Bex is going to be getting absolutely trolled um, at the Speedway this weekend. We wish her well. Um, and, um, yeah, I look forward to, uh, well, I look forward to her seeing the end of the Speedway if she hasn't been ejected by then. Um, <laughs> we shall see. Uh, yeah, uh, good to good to hear from you back. So, hope you're listening, and we'll uh, we'll hope to have you back on here soon. Um, before we get on with this week's show, then um, the places you can find us: uh, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101 on twitter we're at motorsport underscore 101 on youtube we are youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 and i say places you can find us over twenty thousand of you have found us over there and watched our santiago ferrucci segment from last week's motorsport 101 people yeah, that one snowballed didn't it 
Um, uh, just, just a tad. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, many, many thanks for all of you that have tuned in on there. You'll be getting regular podcast highlights over other on YouTube as a result of that. This week's um, sees the team discuss IndyCar's return to Laguna Seca, uh, which of course has much, um, as many a motorcycle racing connection itself. Um, you can also back us on Patreon if you like us so much that you want to back us financially. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. $5 backing gets you early access to all of our weekly shows, be it Motorsport 101 or Bike Live. $10 backing gets you early access um, to our Discord server and the opportunity to listen to these podcasts live as they happen, as Jason is doing right this second. Um, episodes 150 and 151 of Motorsport 101 are both live and available to listen to right now um, as you're listening to this. Um, two very, very different shows, Dre. Uh, first of all, episode 150. Um, and, um, yeah, we like marking these milestones, don't we? Every every sort of 50 mm. shows we pass, we like to mark them with, with a milestone. This one, we chose to mark it by bringing back some of those segments that you just were so desperate to hear again. We put them all into one handy clip show. Yeah, anything that was missing was me holding a giant clipboard. Um, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> it was indeed. Um, for the first time in Motorsport 101 history, I was alone in the booth. Um, but for good reason this time around. But uh, yeah, episode 150, the Motorsport 101 clip show. Um Honestly, I didn't have very many ideas for a special one, this one, but like time was drawing near and I think, okay, what can we do for a, uh, what can we do for 150th episode? Then I was like, okay, let's put together a clip show of some of our finest moments. And that's exactly what we decided to do. Um, chosen by you, the listeners, and a little bit of by my own influence, I do have to openly admit. Uh, <laughs> some of our favorite moments over the last 150 episodes um, are in that ep- are in that clip show, including, but not limited, to me and my great prediction skills mm. regarding the 2017 season, as well as a couple of infamous rants from yours truly regarding ferrari in 2016 that wasn't a good year <laughs> and then the first winner of the motorsport 101 golden cock sky sports f1 need i say more um also adam johnson getting a restraining order via hands of olympic cyclist mm-hmm. um um how the origin of fight club became a thing featuring one mystery science theater f1 host matt carnero and his infectious brazilian laugh um it's the greatest thing ever i have to say also, me wanting to wish death on Chris Cook via losing of the International Fantasy Draft. You'd have to have been there to listen to that one. And the most requested segment of all time, um, arguably at our finest hour, the infamous episode 63 Shag Mary Kill segment in its entirety. And trust me, I listened to it today for the first time in about two years. And... Um, Safe to say, it still holds up. I just—I was—I was listening to half of that with my head in my hands, going, "Did I really just say that?" <laughs> and it's—it's—it's it's, it's a wonderful piece, and um, yeah, I'll be there as your co-host for all of that for episode one fifty, the infamous clip show. Um, episode one fifty one, as mentioned, is also one early access. That's going to be out as well by the time this goes out. Um, releasing it on Sunday. Um, it is a French edition of the show. Yes. Well. Sort of. Yeah, we're, we're um, not one for well, saying that our podcasts peak too soon, but this one definitely mm. peaks in the first 30 seconds. It's yeah, roughly. One of I'm the greatest I'm intros uh, in Motorsport 101 history, um, courtesy of Ryan King. Um, we'll, we'll, let you, we'll let you listen to it for yourself. Uh, but as Dre oh, mentioned, there's very much uh, a French uh, theme to it. Um, oh, yeah. But, but yeah, um, a number of notice- notables from this week's episode 151 of Motorsport 101. Of course, it breaks down the 
um, New York doubleheader, the season finale of uh, Formula E and Jean-Eric Verne takes the title. It also breaks down the IndyCar at Toronto, but also, Dre, it features a return, a welcome return of one of my favourite segments, and I know one that listeners enjoy, Keeping It 101 returns. For one night only, Keeping It 101 was back in the house as we talked all about the World Cup final and the tournament in general, and... uh... Yeah, it was a fun 20 minutes on that as well. Um, like, basically, we are now all French because despite the fact that we're really good, they're also a disgustingly likable team of individuals um, in its own right with Paul Pogba. Like, never give Paul Pogba an open mic. It is a brilliant slash terrible idea. Um, I'll let you decide which one is which on that one. But uh, all about the World Cup final, all about the team in general, all about England and, again, their, their mediocre expectations and yet, you know, the... The fact that football literally swept the nation again for a couple of weeks—it's um, a—it's a really, really fun time, and we yeah, like. I'm glad we brought it back just for this one week. Um, who knows? We might bring it back again in future if episodes are going to be a little bit shorter going forward. We might, we might bring it back and see what happens. We, we, uh, we tend to venture off into darts every once in a while, and that might be coming up again soon because the world match plays this starts this weekend, so that could be fun as well. But um, yeah, all about the World Cup, the World Cup final. England is, is a team somehow finishing fourth in the World Cup um, despite two defeats to the hands of Belgium. Um, I'm still not salty about that. No. And yeah, just generally the World Cup hype in general. It, it, it was a really fun time indeed. So yeah, as, as Lewis mentioned, the return of Keeping It 101, the Formula E doubleheader in New York was John Eric Verne became Formula E's fourth different champion in the first four seasons of Inception, as well as saying goodbye to the Generation 1 cars in general. And of course, a race review of IndyCar in Toronto was Scott Dixon, may have put one hand on the title already with a with a big big win over simon pagino and robert wickens on on that podium is joseph newgarden went into the barriers um let's just say don't get caught in the toronto marbles to say the least um so all of that and much more in episode 151 which is available right now yep go and listen to that right then uh, episode 69 of, of bike live and let's uh, discuss the german grand prix last weekend um starting with moto gp and as I mentioned right at the top, if you know your history of MotoGP and you've got any kind of form guide, you probably know how this one panned out. Um, Mark Marquez had won the previous eight uh, MotoGP races, well, basically eight races he had raced in at the Saxon Ring across MotoGP, Moto2 and the 125 class, going all the way back to 2010. Um, so he was going for nine in a row at the German Grand Prix. Uh, this weekend, um, and we'll start in qualifying, Dre, uh, where, of course, he was chasing that ninth consecutive pole. Um, it's probably fair to say that this is the closest he's come not to getting pole um, at the German Grand Prix. He was pushed all the way by Danilo Petrucci, who used some uh, some uh, cunning tactics um, to yeah. uh, put his way onto pole position. He basically let Jorge Lorenzo tow him round um, yeah, to, to a pole position time um, on Saturday. And Mark Marquez, who as we mentioned, is nigh on unbeatable around this place, had to really reach deep down into his bag of tricks to beat it. Like, all the way to the bottom. I mean, we don't see that very very often with Marquez these days. I think you always get the impression that it's uh, he holds a little bit back for when he absolutely needs it. But, uh, yeah, like it's funny, because going into, going into Q2, like, it was quite a subdued Marquez this weekend. He hadn't had his usual... Like there's a crazy save in there somewhere, or or the, you know, like he wasn't just topping every time sheet. I I I now nickname Andre Ianoni as practice god because he ends up just nailing all these time sheets in practice, but then when it actually counts, he falls away a little bit. But uh, 
yeah, it was it was teased as a, as, a, as a subdued Marquez weekend, and I think a lot of that, to be fair, was down to BT Sport trying to make it seem like it was a more competitive weekend than it was, um, given the, given Marquez's track record here. But as you say, in Q2, he had to dig deep. He had to dig really deep on this one. Um, and for the second year in a row, it was, it was the Nino Petrucci that was the threat um, in qualifying, and... Um, he got a very, very nice toe of Jorge Lorenzo in front of him. Um, again, a guy that is, again, has always been a very good qualifier, excellent one-lapper. And Lorenzo was right up there. And Danilo, like he's done many a time before, has a knack of following people around for hot laps. He and Emily's quite guilty of this as well. Whereas like, he will find the faster man and try and slipstream off of him. And that's exactly what he did. Um, and the punchier, faster corners. And it, it, it paid off. He, he broke the lap record. And like Marquez... First time round, did not beat Danilo Petrucci's time. Um, had a monster save through turn three as well, where he very nearly loses the front. He doesn't nearly, he does lose the front. And he picks it up and he saves it on his elbow yet again on the first qualifying lap. And one, he saw the timing screens apparently, found out that he hadn't done enough by about 200. He goes round again and on the second lap. Yeah. He finds, he finally nails sector three where he'd been losing about a tenth and a half, two tenths every single time round there. He finally nailed Sector 3 going down the waterfall, now renamed the Ralph Wyman Corner. Um, and he, he beats Petrucci by a quarter of a tenth. And it, it, you, you could see it meant a lot to Mark to get that one. And he was... He was he was up. He was standing up on the bike. He was fist bumping after he saw the big screen. He knew he nailed that one, and to do that on the second lap of a tire is utterly immense. Um, it's a, it's another one of those things that you just feel like only Mark Marquez can do, mm. and it's a, it's a, it's another moment of genius from '93. He just keeps producing them. It's he's he's making it look almost seem normal at this point. It's actually quite it's quite disgusting. But um, yeah, another magnificent performance from Marquez in qualifying. There had to again. I think he was at one hundred and ten percent for that final lap, and it showed. Yeah, a new absolute pole position record uh, at the sex ring one twenty point two from Mark Marquez. Uh, heading on into the race then, and in rather in keeping with what we often see with Mark Marquez when he's on pole position, he doesn't always lead it um, into turn one. He's not the fastest of starters. Um, is Mark Marquez in MotoGP? Um, the guy who certainly is one of the fastest starters is Jorge Lorenzo, and he didn't quite make the same level of start that he made um, back at Assen when he came from the third row to lead. He was coming from the outside of the front row this time, having qualified third. Um, and it was pretty off, pretty common, or it was pretty clear, Dre, from very early on, that it wasn't going to be easy for Mark Marquez to pass Jorge Lorenzo. Saxon Ring isn't the easy circuit to pass on. Um, there are two or three overtaking spots around the circuit. Um, but Mark Marquez just seemed to be playing a very, very patient game behind Lorenzo. He didn't look as if he was pushing anyway near as much as Lorenzo was ahead of him um, no, to no. do the lap times he did. And it was pretty clear what Mark Marquez's plan was because once he chose the moment to go and the moment to pass Lorenzo, just a brilliantly clinical move into that final corner. It was a knife-through-butter job. Yeah, it was. He, he was picking his spot and picking his spot, and I think it was of about 17 laps to go. Um, he decided, yep, this is the one right here. Goes down the inside. Nothing Lorenzo can do about it on the final quarter. He's picked the line and his breaking spot perfectly. It's a bit like how he did it in Haref. It was he, he, he saw Lorenzo take the whole shot, 
Marquez was on a harder compound tyre, so all he, he knew all he had to do really was weather the storm and the tyre would come back to him later on in the race. And it, it, and he, he, he passed him, at, the, at, at ironically, his own corner in her after the Lorenzo corner of the final hairpin. Similar deal here. He, he, he was behind him. You could see where he was faster. He could, he could pick his spot, and he picked it to perfection. And, yeah, it's it was again, it was a very well-measured, much more calculated Marquez. It wasn't just the usual Marquez where he's trying to break off early, and you could see he, he might lose the front or, you know, have another one of his near crashes he has. When you know trying to you know trying to do something the bike isn't capable really of doing this time around he was a lot more disciplined a lot more well measured he he knew what his pace was he knew what he had in the tank if necessary and once he got past Petrucci into second place he he closed up on Lorenzo very quickly took his time found the spot and next thing you know the race was over basically <laughs> well, well we'll come on to that now about how the race or when we find out the race truly was over. Um, because Mark Marquez passes, uh, sorry, he passes uh, Jorge Lorenzo to take the lead. Valentino Rossi is running third uh, at this stage, just mm. behind Lorenzo. And Rossi, being as experienced as he is, knew exactly what the score was. As soon as Mark Marquez passed Lorenzo over the lead, Rossi knew he had to do the same. Um, to mm. have any chance of keeping up with Marquez, he had to pass straight away instantly and follow Marquez if possible. Um, Rossi essentially does that. Lorenzo makes a mistake at turn one, goes wide and allows Rossi um, sorry, at turn 10, the corner before the waterfall, Lorenzo goes wide and allows um, Rossi through. Um, now, Valentino Rossi at this stage is around a second behind Marquez. Rossi then sets the fastest lap, a 121.7, um, to close the gap to within 0.6 of Mar- Marquez. And I, I probably wasn't the only one who was thinking this, but I literally said out loud, sitting at home watching this, as soon as that 21.7 from Rossi came up and he was closing on Marquez, I went, surely not. Surely, mm. surely not. Mm. Like even by Valentino Rossi standards, surely he's not going to chase down Marquez at the Saxon Ring, um, right? Which, which I think many people were thinking when Rossi did that, because it was it in many ways it followed the script of Rossi. Many, many of the ways he wins his races is by sort of playing that patient game, chasing guys down at the end of a race. But the response from Marquez was was extraordinary. Rossi's fastest lap came on lap nineteen, a one twenty one seven. Mark Marquez clearly would have been notified by his pit board that Rossi was coming. Responds mm-hmm. with immediately a fastest lap of his own, a 21.6. Follows that with a 21.8. Then another 21.6 for the fastest lap of the race. And before we know it, the lead has been tripled. And Valentino Rossi is way out of reach. That was that. That was Valentino waving the white flag. He knew that deal was done right yeah, there yeah, and he, then. He showed um, Marquez his hand. Marquez saw what Rossi had and thought... Nah, we're not doing this. Yeah, it was it was like he showed his hand and then Marcos was like, Yeah, I'm gonna raise you and I'm gonna see what happens here. And um yeah, that that really was all Valentino had. Like again, we've seen this before. I remember Valentino did something very similar at Le Mans earlier this season when he when he broke free of Lorenzo, got into third, trying to chase down Marquez and Petrucci on this occasion. It was Petrucci that was in second at the time. And I remember Rossi set the fastest lap of the race once he was in clear air. And then two laps later, Marquez responded with a fastest lap back. Um, I, I think Honda guys might have thought Rossi was the bigger threat compared to DP9 at the time. Um, turns out they were wrong on this occasion. But yeah, if he's done that before, where it's like Rossi showed his hand. It was like, okay, I'm, I've got this in me. Have you got a response? And then Marquez was like, okay, bet. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like that was it, basically. Um 
he does that. It's like, that's what Marquez does. He, he he had the in his locker all along. He had mid twenty six. He had mid twenty ones in him. The yeah, whole there was way there was a ten lap stretch from lap fifteen to twenty four where nine of Marquez's ten laps are in the one twenty ones, and the one that isn't was a twenty two zero. Um, whereas Rossi did that twenty one seven, the fastest lap on lap nineteen, didn't do another twenty one for the rest of the race. Yeah, that was literally all he had. That was every like, like that was Rossi saying, "Okay, this is I'm going to put everything I've got into this one lap, and I'm going to see what all this does." And it turns out that was all Rossi had. Um, yeah, like like Marquette, that, that that's I think the biggest problem with Valentino at this point. He just doesn't have the ultimate pace anymore that someone like Mar- Marquez has got. Because I've said it before, Marquez has the seventh gear. He's got that where he's got an extra two or three temps in back pocket if necessary where he can really put the hammer down. And again, I don't think that was Marquez at full speed. Because, again, Rossi yeah, cause, was... Because Rossi's never... big strength, you'd say, at the moment, would be racecraft uh, and his ability yes. to, to think his way through a race. Whereas, I think that basically is where... What Mark Marquez will have been thinking is, like, if I let Rossi get close, then he perhaps goes favourite here. If, he's, if he gets into striking distance where he can actually put a pass on me, I'm in trouble. So the, the, mm. the, the, the strategy is, don't let him get close. Um, and that's what Mark Marquez did, and his, his his incredible pace for that second half of the race, or the last third of the race, just broke Valentino Rossi completely. He pulled, as I mentioned, within two laps, the lead went from 0.6 to knocking on 1.7 seconds. Um, and you know, it's not like Rossi was going slowly. He was weakly. He was he was gapping Lorenzo at this point. He was gapping Petrucci, who was next along in fourth, and you know, the rest of the field was slightly further back than that. Um, mm-hmm. It was just an extraordinary raising of the level from Mark Marquez, and and I agree with you what you what you say that, that Rossi just doesn't have that seven gear anymore. But I just don't think anyone has that level of, of performance that Mark oh. Marquez keeps up his pocket, um, which is extraordinary. And we've mentioned already, Dre, his record at the Saxon Ring. It's it's nine in a row now from nine pole positions. Add that to his record around uh, around uh, the Circuit of the Americas, where he's never been beaten in qualifying or the race either. Although, strictly speaking, he wasn't on pole this year because he got that penalty. Um, he's got a very, very good record at Phillip Island when he's not on the deck. He's got a very, very good record around Aragon. Um, it, it, it's a, the bedrock of why he is so difficult to beat in a world championship these days. In his MotoGP career, he's only been beaten to the championship once. Um, and that was 2015, of course. Um, it's How must that nag away at the psyche of his rivals? If you're a Valentino Rossi, if you're a Lorenzo, if you're a Dovizioso, whoever, pick pick any of those key title challenges in MotoGP. And how must it nag away at their psyche? How must it affect you mentally knowing that you can essentially, going into any given season, give Marc Marquez three or four victories before you've even started? That's the problem. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Lewis. Yeah, like that's the thing. Nobody else in the MotoGP field has a quote-unquote bank around. No one else has got one. Can you say any other track on the calendar um, right right, right now has got one rider that will completely dominate and win right now? They don't. I don't don't think there's anyone out there that's got that scenario. Not even Austria, which a couple of years ago was nailed on for Ducati. It isn't anymore because Marquez was right right on Dovizioso's back exhaust last year. you're absolutely right. Like Marquez probably has three, maybe four rounds where he's now, if the bike is is working, he is probably going to win. And and that again, Saxon Ring is one, Aragon is another one. 
the coats are obviously like just as well Saxling's going next year yeah god like the, the other the other guys are doing the same thank christ for that one um but any anti-clockwise circuit plus the saxon ring and maybe philip island too like marquez is walking in there as odds on favorite so especially you, you, you add to that the fact that if we ever get a flag to flag race he's probably going to win that yeah yeah because again he's he's braver than everyone else on on changeable conditions he, he's willing to come in a lap earlier where a dry bike is sometimes eight to ten seconds a lap faster than a wet one, which we saw the first time he had one of these at Masano a few years back when Loris Baz was, was, was almost on the podium and, and you know, Bradley Smith was second. Um, it's one of those things where Marquez is the guy now in the field where if, if conditions are difficult or if you're walking into the unknown, he's got more in him to win any given race than anybody else it's it's terrifying and like he's won five out of the first nine this season he's probably got two or three more at least i can't see anyone else touching him for the championship at this point in time and uh, given that we're, we're almost halfway in we'll be halfway in after bruno um in a couple of weeks time but the way it's going right now like marquez already has five wins and two of them are on tracks that he's not really supposed to win round like like Le Mans and Haref, and you, you could even make the case that his winner Assen was a little bit unexpected because he's only won there once before in the top flight, and that was a flag-to-flag race. So Marquez hasn't hasn't gone particularly well at Assen in the past either, and yet here we are again. He's 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 got three out of his five wins on tracks that you would think would probably go to other riders. So when you, like when you weigh it up like that, it's no surprise he's got a forty-six point advantage because. At the moment, no one can touch him. Like, mm. like round to round, if he's not like, he, like he's had one DNF at Mugello, he's had one meltdown in Argentina. I think every other race this year, he's finished first or second. How do you beat that? Mm. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's as simple as that. You, you just you just can't do it. He's he's just too good at the moment. Yeah, and as as Dre mentions, he's forty six points clear of of number forty six Valentino Rossi in the championship at the moment, uh, heading into the summer break and. <laughs> When you, when you look at the results of the race, just not pure looking at the result at first glance, you think, well, top two in the championship finished first and second, so Rossi's kind of limited the damage. He's only lost five points to Marquez in the championship. But when you look deeper into it and actually study the race and look at how it's going and look at the season as a whole and how it's going, you get the feeling that Valentino Rossi is riding and Yamaha are riding at their limits, if not exceeding their limit, by being in second. Um, to mm. Mark Marquez by being as close as they are in that Valentino Rossi hasn't you know he hasn't won a race yet this season nor of Yamaha second was his best result of the year it's the first time he's finished higher than third this year um, and he is putting together a great run of podiums and he's you know outside of Marquez he's probably been the the most complete rider in MotoGP this year uh, as Valentino Rossi the results he's putting in he's he's seems to have Maverick Vinales under control um, at the moment in that team um but as I mentioned, you really get the feeling, Dre, that they are riding at their limit just to stay in touch with Mark Marquez, and there's no immediate or imminent feeling that they're going to be able to chip away at that lead. No, because they can't win, and that's the problem. Marquez has five of them, and, and like, again, the Yamaha the only bike that seems over. to have a chance of beating the Honda Eldings being equal is the Ducati, and they seem to be still blowing hot and cold. Yeah, the three races that they, that they Marquez has not won this season of all, like all every race that that has, Marquez hasn't won this year has been won by a Ducati. Um, so you know, apart from Cal Crutchlow in another Honda mm-hmm. in Argentina, that's the only exception. But yeah, I think you're right. It's 
like it, it's hard to get a read on Yamaha because on one hand they're second and third in the Riders Championship. Valentino Rossi has genuinely put together another seemingly age-breaking season where he's still one of the best riders on, on the planet today at the age of 39, and he, he's had five podiums this season already. And as a team, they've had a bike on the podium, you know, every round for the last five rounds. Um, and this was the first round this season where both riders were on the podium after halfway through the year. So the, on paper, the team's gotten better as the season's gone on. But on the other side of the coin is this is a team we evaluate in the context of wins and championships they've been super good over the last decade with you know rossi and lorenzo both winning multiple titles and like the way it's been set up like they were hailing valentino rossi as this unmistakable god as the, as the backbone of their team so much so he's now got such influence that he can tell johan zarko to essentially piss off when it <laughs> comes to riding a yamaha in future and everyone just seems to be okay with that and maverick vinales who was hailed as the marquez stopper a couple of years ago maybe is like the anti-venom to to marquez as being you know the like yamaha getting a young talented rider of their own to possibly combat Marquez going forward hasn't really happened yet. I mean, again, he's still Marquez not as good as Valentino. Yeah, he's not even as good as Valentino, let alone Marquez, who just seems to be getting better and better as years go by. He's becoming. So I think Marquez is becoming an even more complete motorcycle rider, which is a terrifying force for everyone else involved. But like Dovi is not the threat he once was as well, which only makes the situation worse. Dovi's just not the guy he was in 2017. Um, more on that later, but. It's 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 tricky because, like I said, Yamaha, in one hand, isn't doing too bad. On the other hand, given how they've won championships and, you know, they've had double-digit win seasons not so long ago, and this is a team that we expect them to win races, um, the fact they've now gone over a year since their last win, they've gone 19 races since their last victory. Maverick has now gone over 25 races since his last victory back at Le Mans last year. Like, fundamentally, this isn't good enough for Yamaha. They've got to be thinking wins. They've got to be mm. thinking, you know, we, we are the prime contenders to be challenging Marquez, or so we thought. Now it's a situation where Ducati, I think, definitely has a better bike than them at the moment, and certainly one that's better designed to win in the, in the current state of MotoGP. And the problem is that both their riders really have underperformed given the standards we expect of them. Mm. Um, and... As I said, like I think Rossi at the moment, and I might write a piece about this next week during my time off on holiday. Um, Rossi might be the best and the worst thing about this team right now. It's really weird. And again, I, I applaud him. Again, he, he mentioned this after the race that he was studying film on Jonas Volga of all people, the guy that was looking at probably data. the yeah probably the guy that was probably closest to challenging Marquez for that you know, for that un, un, unbeatable record at the Saxon Ring and gave him a very good fight. Um, last year, he like a guy who's 39 in his 20th top flight season is going out of his way and studying film on a rookie last year. It's kind yeah, of that level of dedication it. at 39. It's unbelievable. Like, the guy really. I, I have to respect the fact that Valentino still really, really badly wants to win. Uh, you know, which in his 20th top flight season is unbelievable dedication. Yeah, I'll, give you, I'll give you the quote that Rossi said of the race. He said, Folger last year did an incredible race at the level of Mark. He stayed there and he fought. So I studied all his race and all his lines, the way he rides and which way he set up the bike. And I think it was a good help. So I have to give him the trophy. 
<laughs> very good. Very good. Um, but to, but to go that's... back and look at essentially a rookie last year, a guy who has Gee. 20 years less experience than him, um, and study his lines, study his setup, study his data from last year. And essentially, I mean, they say imitation is the best form of flattery. He's essentially trying to copy what a rookie did last year, um, which is incredible. Yeah. We've, al- we've already seen him trying to sort of imitate Mark Marquez's riding style. That's what um, signaled, uh, in a way, his his renaissance two or three years ago when he when he mm. became a race-winning contender again. Um, and yeah, it's Yamaha. In terms of Yamaha's underlying problems, I think it's been covered already at, at great length, but I think they got complacent and got lazy around the time of the electronics changes um, start of 2016, where we brought we saw the spec ECU come in, and Yamaha just thought, well, it, it's a much more basic level of electronics, we'll figure it out. Whereas yeah. Honda and Ducati put much more research and much more manpower into working out what that meant and actually tailoring the electronics to suit their bike. Of course, Ducati had uh, independent bikes the year before already running that spec ECU anyway so they could have the data yep. to run with it Yamaha could have done that with their satellite bikes but chose not to do it and I think Yamaha purely have got, got they got lazy they got complacent and they still haven't caught back up I mean what is the problem we continuously hear Valentino Rossi particularly and also Maverick Vinales say is the biggest root issue with this M1 the electronics uh, and, yep. they, and they still haven't fixed it um, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I still think I mean Ultimately, neither of their riders are quite on that level with Mark Marquez. Mark Marquez is the best rider in the world by a distance, and you know there is then yeah. a, there is then a second tier underneath him, which has the likes of Rossi, Vinales, Lorenzo, Davizioso on it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Rossi, in many ways, is doing what he did in 2015 in that he's he's maximising the results of his bike and putting together a very consistent season together. But he's doing it on a, on a slightly smaller scale this year because he's, he's doing it in seconds and thirds and fourths rather than first and seconds. Um, right. and, and obviously with Mark Marquez and Honda on the form they're on, that's not going to win him a championship. But I still think he's he's proven this year that if, if Yamaha can sort their problems out fundamentally with their bike, I think he's still good enough to convert it and to deliver it into, into race-winning positions. But... Yamaha are just so far behind at the moment. And I, I don't think, Dre, I mean, I don't think they'll go this year winless. I think they'll win at some stage. I think they're too good not to. And I think their riders are good enough to just pull it out of the bag somewhere and win a race somewhere. But in terms of Yamaha being able to win on a consistent basis, I think they're looking at next year at the earliest. I think so too. I I think you hit, I think you were spot on talking about the problems of electronics. I, I saw the quote from Rossi. On that BT takes a whole new bike to fit yeah, exactly. Like you, you need a fundamentally different bike to get around how complicated electronics can be. And we talked about this during Kotam and Pat was on the show and talked about how Yamaha was so well, Yamaha thought they finally got the electronics right when Maverick Vinales finished second, um finished second at the circuit of the Americas that day. And then he would go on to not smell the top five until Aston a fortnight ago. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. And again, as, as Rossi mentioned, like he is apparently now going to the back and telling Yamaha's technicians every day he's in the office, electronics, electronics, we need something on the acceleration. We need something on this. Like Rossi is, you could tell he is so desperate for title number 10. He like, and the problem is he's in this new golden era of Mark Marquez who, again, is already probably one of the greatest riders we've ever seen in terms of just sheer un- unprecedented talent. Um, but that Yamaha, the weapon that he can... like The Yamaha is more than good enough to win champions. We've, we've known that. The M1, the current M1 they've got, 
is an excellent bike. The problem is that the electronics are so bad that they're losing out on acceleration, which is where the Honda used to be struggling until a couple of years ago. Um, and as you say, Ducati had a lot of inside information about these electronics going in because they were their satellite bikes were running them. Ducati had helped develop the standardized package. So it's not entirely a surprise that Dovi was so great last season. Like Honda decided to basically change. They had a change of ethos and were like, okay, we're going to... We're going to make the bikes a lot less aggressive. We're going to make them tamer and then work from there. And that's what was able to get to Marquez to find in his old mojo again, basically after a couple of really reckless seasons, like in 2015, where he crashed five times, you know, crashed six times at one five. It was really up and down. Um, they need to fix the electronic issue really, really bad. Like they're, they're losing out in key areas and like, like corner exit speed and acceleration. That's where Ducati is at their strongest. And they're never going to win a race against the Ducati, given that that's their biggest strength. Remember watching Aston and seeing where Dovi was making his moves. He could do it into turn one because he's a demonically late breaker and he's getting such excellent drives off corner exit speeds. That's how Lorenzo was also had those two wins during his quote-unquote comeback at Mugello and Catalunya. It's that corner exit speed, it's that acceleration coming off the apex, off a corner. Um, that's where Yamaha needs to make the difference up, and they need to find probably two or three temps a lap before they can really start thinking about winning races again. Like, if, if you're Rossi, this is a nice proof of concept. It's proof that he's still really consistent and still more than competitive enough to be in the top flight as a quote-unquote second-tier alien. But you're not winning a championship when you have no wins for the season and Mark Marquez has five. It's, it's, it's just not going to happen. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've got serious work to do still. Um, in terms of Maverick Vinales, very quickly, I mean, he didn't have a bad race at all and he didn't necessarily fall back in the early stages like he does normally. On the first lap, he was fifth by lap one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then he started to fall back ever so slightly as, as Dobby came past him, uh, Crutchlow came past him before he fell off and, and obviously Bautista came through. Um but he's he's now on the podium for the second race in a row. He finished third behind his teammate. And he's he's steadily getting there, isn't he? But once again, just to pick up on the point we've already made, he's still the second rider within his team, which is not really what Yamaha bought him for. Exactly. I, I, I still stand to this day. He was brought in as the Marquez stopper. He was brought in, I think, as a counter to Mark Marquez as this young extremely talented rider that was going to be the future of their team for the next 10 years or so as the guy to build around you know and don't get me wrong like Jorge Lorenzo left stupefyingly high standards when he left that team to go to Ducati standards that I think it was always going to be hard for Maverick to replicate but Maverick was really good on a Suzuki so everyone liked him for good reason and yeah again this like Mark like Maverick Vignanes is not one since Le Mans that was over a season ago. That's now that was twenty-two races ago. Now. Um, like he still got fundamental problems in his game. Like I said, like his early pace is not good enough. He will he will drop two or three positions in the first opening laps of a race, but then the second half of the race he picks it up and he finds he finds himself again. It's really peculiar. I don't normally see riders do that. It's really strange. And I, I, again, it's I think it's something he will inevitably grow out of, but. At the moment, like, this is okay, but this is not what Yamaha hired him for. Um, They hired him to win races and basically spearhead the team post-Rossi. And right now, the team is still being built around Valentino because Valentino is the more consistent guy who performs when the bike isn't at its optimum. 
when it is its optimum, Maverick's probably a little bit faster than Valentino at this point, but that just doesn't happen any, anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm trying to look at it now. Like, the, the last time Maverick had a better result um, than Valentino Rossi was back at the back at Cota. Oh, no, he won AP Acid. He was third to Rossi's fifth at Acid. But when you look at the season as a whole, um, Rossi's beaten Vinales six times out of nine races. Um, mm-hmm. And. The problem for Yamaha, I mean, he's slightly addressed that recently, but the the issues they've been having is that when Rossi's been beating Vinales, it's not like they've been third and fourth. It was like Qatar, third, sixth. Um, at Le Mans, Rossi was third, Vinales seventh. At Magella, Rossi was third, Vinales eighth. Catalonia, he was third, Vinales sixth. Um, and, and he's now gone third, third since then. So there's progress being made with Maverick, but... Um, those those run that run of races where he was seventh twice, then eighth, then sixth. That, that is a legacy of being down on the fringes of the top ten or even lower on lap one, um, and not get, not getting back to the front because you're too far back to really make it up. So so Vialis is making progress in that respect, and those two podiums that he's had in the last two races are a legacy of not losing out quite so much early on. But he's still clearly not as comfortable on full full tanks with new tires at the start of a race as he should be. Um, and mm-hmm. again, I think that's another issue that, again, that's not going to be addressed in, in a moment because surely if it was such an easy fix, he'd have fixed it by now. We're halfway through the season. Um, exactly. So I think that's another one where it that's going to take a whole new bike. And look how long it took Jorge Lorenzo to be able to ride his bike comfortably to be good at the end of a race. It took him a year and a half. So you kind yeah. of fear with Maverick that it might well be until next year where he's finally able to ride a bike how he wants it from lap one uh, to, in the case of the Saxon Ring, lap 30. Um, he finished third at the weekend, just behind his teammate. Just behind them in fourth was Daniela Petrucci. Now, we've discussed him already in terms of his, his performance in qualifying. He very nearly beat Mark Marquez to pole. Um, but it's very clear, Dre, that A, Daniela Petrucci likes the place, but but this is the kind of result that will have the factory Ducati team looking at it, thinking, maybe we did make the right call in bringing this guy in for next year because he comfortably outshone their factory riders, basically from the start of the weekend to the end of it. Yeah, on the same bike as, as Dovi and Lorenzo, he finished fourth. And Lorenzo had a bit of a sloppy day, especially in the second half of that race where he was going wide, left, right, and center. And Dovi really was nowhere pretty much all weekend. He had to go through Q1 um, to get into Q2. He didn't he didn't get into the top 10 in free practice. And it showed. It showed that Dovi struggled. And Petrucci was the most comfortable Ducati out there especially in the first half of the race. Um, the, the other one that was really comfortable we'll get to in a minute, and it was one of the rides of the season so far. But Petrucci, again, very impressive. And this, again, this is no longer really a surprise anymore that he's doing this on the track. But uh, yeah, he's, he's always gone well around here. He likes this track. He always has. Again, very, very strong in qualifying. And yeah, in the race again, did what he had to do. You know, we picked, they couldn't quite handle the Yamahas, but beat everybody else, and it was top Ducati, which is again, given the riders they've got under their under their manifold and under their wing as as riders, a, a very impressive feat indeed. Yeah, speaking of very impressive feats, Dre's hinted at already. Uh, fifth position um, in the Grand Prix for Alvaro Bautista on the Angel Nieto Ducati. It's a year-old Ducati. Um, that he's running and it's also obviously a Ducati that's been run in an independent team the Aspar team that's one of the more skint teams in in MotoGP and of course won't be on the grid next year they're selling their spot um, to the uh, Sepang International Circuit and the Petronas Yamaha team Uh, so how do we put this ride into context Ray you've described it as well one of the rides of the season 
I completely, yeah, I stand by that. It's his best result on a, on the bike since uh, Magello last year, where he beat Marquez to fifth place in that dogfight. Um, like he's on last year's Ducati, and again, he beat both factory riders on the 18. A, a very, very impressive ride from Bautista. At one point, had the one point had the fastest lap of the race a couple on a couple of occasions. He was very comfortable out there on that GP17, and. I actually feel kind of sad for him because I remember he spoke about after the race how he said, "Yeah, this form is great, but it's 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 come too late." Mm. Um, most mostly because he hasn't got a seat right now for next year, and I find a rider of his quality not having a seat purely because he's riding for the for the Angel Nieto team, which is a team that struggles for funds and you know only has one GP17 to ride with of last year's machinery, and yet Bautista has been in the top ten five of the last six races um he's he's, he's very quietly putting together a really really good season um and he's only five points behind danny pedrosa in the championship which kind of says a lot about how sneaky bautista has ridden and how well he's sneakily ridden all season long but uh, this weekend was was the cherry on top uh Again, comfortably being able to pass and being able to run with guys on a bike with a year's better tech on it, like Dovi, like Lorenzo. Um, and he beat them head-to-head over the course of a 30-lap race. Um, incredible ride from Bautista, given the context of his, his team, his, 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 his questionable biking future. Um, that's one way to put yourself in the shop window. That was a fantastic one. The, the shop window that he's looking to be in is World Superbikes, by the looks of it. The MotoGP mm. rides are quickly running out um, for next year, and perhaps a World Superbike spot may be uh, still in, in, in Alvaro Bautista's future. Um, quickly then, the Ducati factory riders. Davizioso, we've already touched on a bit, a very poor weekend for him, the less said the better. He finished seventh, um, having had to go through Q1 on Saturday. Um, but quickly on Lorenzo, who finished ahead of him in sixth, um, it was it was another of those races that we've seen a lot of from Lorenzo in the last year and a half, where he starts very well and fades as the race goes on, um, fading in this case to sixth. But this occasion, Dre, his his decline in the race appeared to be much more tire related rather than a physical limitation, and it kind of showed, didn't it? As as I mentioned earlier on, he looked to be riding that Ducati a lot harder than Marquez was riding his Honda following him, um, and in the end, he just took way too much out of his tires. Yeah, I mean, Lorenzo was running soft, soft, and, and that's what he tends to do during races because he wants to get the whole shot, get as good a spot as he can, get up the field as fast as he can and hope he can handle it when the tyres start to go. And in all fairness, the Saxon ring is a bit of a tyre killer. It, it was hailed as that on commentary. It was uttered repeatedly over the course of the weekend that this like nobody really knew what was the right tires to go into on race day no one was sure whether the soft rear could handle 30 laps um and you could see during the race lorenzo was at 100 percent right from the get-go because i think he knew that was probably the only way he was going to win this race if you let marquez get away early and let him dictate the pace then you're not going to win this like lorenzo had to punch him in the nose and try and get in front and see what he could do from the front and yeah, you could see Lorenzo was going very hard and simply put, he overcooked his tyres. His goose was cooked by lap, by lap 20. Um, just fell down the order again, just couldn't, just, like he, was, he was making mistakes, he was going wide, he just didn't have the edge grip that that uh, Marquez had on this occasion. Again, Marquez was very, very good on his tyres, did not have any issues with that whatsoever, still putting in 
you know, you know, sub twenty two sec, sub one twenty twos, like deep into the twenties lap wise, and Lorenzo had to run hard to try and stay with him, and as a result, just overdid his set of tires, and he can, he, he just wasn't able to come back from that afterwards. No, he wasn't. Um, Marquez, the winner then from Rossi and Vinales, Petrucci, Batista, and Lorenzo completed the top six. Um, we've covered Dovi in seventh. Danny Pedrosa in his last year and Grand Prix was eighth, ahead of Joan Zarco in ninth. And then it brings us to. Uh, 10th position, Bradley Smith. It was a, it was a mixed weekend for KTM, it's fair to say. Um, very much uh, feast or famine in that Mika Calio, their test rider, um, missed his second. This is the second time this has happened to him now, where he's entered as a wild card and not even started the race. Um, he had a very nasty accident. Could have been a lot, lot worse, this one, where he went off at turn six and didn't recognize early enough that he wasn't going to stop the bike before the wall. So he jumped off the bike hit the air fence and the bike very nearly followed him in. Um, well, it did follow him in, but hit him in the knee and he's he's injured his knee ligaments. He's pretty badly hurt. Obviously, didn't start the race as a result of that. So we didn't see Calio. Paul Sparker only lasted as far as the third corner um, before he got involved in an accident, which really he started um, when he lost the front, took out Rins and Miller um, and ended his race, ended Miller's race and Rins sorry, ended Rin's race, and Miller remounted and had to come back from the back of the field, which left Bradley Smith as the one KTM left. And it's fair to say, Dre, he's not had the greatest of times with KTM for a variety of reasons. He's been pretty much in Paul Spargo's shadow. He's still been trying to recover from injuries that he suffered before he joined the team. Um, Mm. But as the old saying goes, it's like riding a bike. You never forget it. And (laughs) this is as good as we've seen from Bradley Smith in the best part of two years, it's probably fair to say. And much like Bautista, he's a rider trying to put himself in the shot window. And this is a result and a performance that KTM kind of needed, but Bradley Smith especially needed. Yeah, Jesus. Um, that That's the best result KTM's had all year. Um, to tie with the temp that uh, Mika Cadio had at, uh, at, a, at her ref. As, so, yeah, Paul's been very consistent pretty much all season long. Um and yeah, Bradley again has always kind of had to play second fiddle in that KTM team pretty much for the last two years now. Paul is is an absolute world class rider, no questions there. And but yeah, Bradley did a very very good job today. Kept it upright, didn't make any mistakes. You know, was was in you know a, a field of, of solid riders like a Fisirin and and Andre Ianoni, who again is a guy that is on a really big factory bike with concessions as well. And Smith came out on top. This was a nice reminder of what Bradley Smith is capable of in MotoGP. He's a quality rider, um, and we know he can do this. I, I just wish he showed it a bit more often because he probably would still have a job. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a, it's 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 bittersweet given that you know his his future still hangs very up, very much up in the air going forward. But uh, again, like it's it's nice to see Bradley up there, especially given how hard he's had to he's had to work and fight to get to this position. A very, very well done 10 place indeed. Yeah, congratulations to him. As, as I mentioned, it's his best result of the year and it equals KTM's. Uh, behind him, the rest of the point scorers, Hafish Siren, as Dre mentioned, was 11th and Iannone 12th. Um, so KTM beat Suzuki. They beat Aprilia um, in the race as well with Rabat 13th. Jack Miller, 14th, as I mentioned, he got delayed on the first lap when Paul and uh, Rins went down in front of him. And Scott Redding, on the solar prelude to start the race, rounded out the points in 15th. Elias Spargo had a pretty heavy spill in morning warm-up, and he missed the race as well. Shout-out to one more guy, though, that we we, we should mention, because he deserves it. 
Um, 16th position, so no points, but certainly plaudits for Stefan Bradl. Um, oh, the yeah. one, the one German in the field. He was in the commentary box in free practice one um, <laughs> for, for Eurosport in Germany. Got the call that Franco Mobidelli wasn't going to be able to ride on in the rest of the weekend, and that he was going to have to step up and ride that Mark Vidias Honda. And what a great job he did, Dre! Out qualified and out raced Thomas Luti on the same bike. I don't know if that says more about Thomas Luti's current state of play in the Mark VDS camp more than it does for Bradl, poor guy. But as he mentioned, uh, you could see him run into the back of the Mark VDS um, um, team team bus between FP1 and 2, having realised, wait, I need some levers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> First time Bradl had ridden a MotoGP bike in two months, because of course he's Honda's test rider, but he'd had two months since he'd ridden the thing. Exactly, just just out of nowhere, he suddenly got the last minute call. Yeah, St- Stefan, you mind racing for us this week? And uh, yeah, he got the call. The next thing you know, he's on the bike, and yeah, as he mentioned, was was top mark VDS on the day. He outqualified his teammate, he finished ahead of his teammate. Um, and again, he's always gone well at home. He's been a strong rider at home for quite some time, and yeah, I, I handled it like a true professional. Well done, Stefan Brad. That was an excellent weekend. Yeah, he was. Uh, he didn't disgrace himself at all, did Bradl. We'll be seeing him, incidentally, uh, later in the year. He has also got a few wild cards later in the year um, as Honda's official test rider. I believe it's uh, the Red Bull Ring uh, where we'll see him next. I know Mizano is a race that he's registered as a wild card as well, and no doubt Mategi you'll see him as well. Uh, Stefan Bradl, Honda's uh, official test rider. Um, championship standings then, uh, as they look at the moment. Mark Marquez, we've already told you, he leads Valentino Rossi by 46 points at the moment as we are approaching the halfway stage in the season. We have nine races gone uh, of the 19 um, for the calendar. Maverick Vinales is third at the moment in the points. He uh, is just behind Valentino Rossi um, overall. He trails, trails him by 10. Andre Vizioso is 21 points behind Vinales in fourth, um, which means he is a sum 77 off the overall lead. Um, he's gone back into fourth, though, this weekend, ahead of Juan Zarca, who's very much got off the boil since his crash at Le Mans. Um, Jorge Lorenzo is 6th Daniel Petrucci 7th Cal Crutchlow has dropped to 8th having uh, had another DNF Andre Inoni 9th and Jack Miller completes the top 10 on 57 points um, into Moto2 and um, we've already told you about the uh, the mixed day that KTM had um, in terms of their MotoGP team if we're expanding it to KTM as a whole the highlight of their day came in the Moto2 race um, and a memorable result for uh, a rider who, Dre, much like Bradley Smith in MotoGP, hasn't exactly had the easiest couple of years because um, Brad Binder won the Moto3 title at the end of 2016, had a horrendously injury-ravaged start to his Moto2 career last year, um, and we started to see towards the end of last year just what Brad Binder could do once he was fully fit, uh, once that KTM was capable of, of challenging up the front. And a fully deserved first win for Brad Binder. We're, we're big fans of him on this show for obvious reasons. He's, he's such a nice bloke. But um, given the opportunity, given a race win to fight for, Brad Binder went out there and grabbed it. He absolutely did. And um, yeah, an, an excellent ride from Brad Binder. This, this had been coming for quite some time. As mentioned, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, basically had a horrendous arm injury going into his first season of Moto2 last year and then had to have it operated on a second time because the plate in it actually moved and I can't even begin to imagine how much pain that must have been um, to have a metal plate in your arm be moving about as you're trying to race a motorcycle at 170 miles an hour. Um, but yeah, like Binder's had, had, has basically had to face an uphill climb in his Moto2 career right from the get-go. 
and has often had to play second fiddle to Miguel Oliveira, who again is is a world class rider who will be in MotoGP next year. Um, and yeah, he's had, he's had to play second fiddle to him on a, on, on a quite a few occasions, given his quality and given that Binder's taken a little bit longer to adapt to the top flight um, of Moto2 racing. But yeah, he had, a, he had a golden chance here. He got a great start. You know, the, the, the top four broke off quite quickly. And yeah, he had a chance to win a race for the first time and he grabbed it with both hands. He was very impressive. Um, did what he had to do. Got to the, you know, got to the front of the field. Once he got there, he, he was under pressure a lot of the time from from three guys or at least two guys that we did not expect up front um but in the end nobody could touch him and uh yeah binder survived and ended up taking a fairly comfortable victory in the end his first one in moto two and his his his, his God, the first win for brinder in general in over two years good great to see yeah first win since the final moto three race that he rode in back at the end of 2016 um at valencia um and I was about to say, it just goes to show what happens when the KTMs qualify well. But even Brad Binder, he had to come from 10th on the grid um, himself. And obviously made that brilliant start that you referred to that got him up towards the front. Um, and it, it kind of shows KTM just what a, an embarrassment of riches they've got rider-wise uh, going mm-hmm. forward. They're already promoting Miguel Oliveira up next year into their MotoGP team alongside Hafish Siren or up into their Tech 3 MotoGP team, their satellite team next year um, in, in MotoGP. And they've got Brad Binder waiting in the ring in the wings. They're bringing up Jorge Martin into their team next year in Moto Two, and at the rate of progress that Brad Binder's going on, I mean, we saw once he started winning in Moto Three, he didn't stop winning. Um, Brad Binder's kind of showing for KTM that in next year in Moto Two, once Oliveira's moved out of there, they seem to they're probably going to have another ready-made championship contender in Binder. It could be. I mean, Binder towards the end of last season when KTM was good, Binder was up there too. He was only half a step behind Miguel, who you know may have won the last three, but Binder was in contention for for you know the majority of the time that Miguel was too. So, if, if KTM can find a little bit more and they can find a little bit more to, to consistently challenge Calex on a on a regular basis, if he can do that, then there's no reason why Binder you know can't win the Moto Two title next year. Um, once he becomes essentially team leader and Miguel moves up, like they they could have another ready to go top tier title threat alongside um, Jorge Martin. So uh, yeah, they, 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 there's, there's a lot of reason to be excited as a KTM guy when you've got Binder and Martin in your team for next year, and Binder who again is already capable of winning races and you know has been up there as a, as a top tier level rider for quite some time. Um, so yeah, like they, they've they've pretty much got the formula set up already for it. So yeah, it could be very interesting indeed. Yeah, what we got in the end at the Saxon Ring was a three-way fight for victory between three riders who all hadn't won before um, in their Moto Two careers: Binder, Juan Mir, and Luca Marini. Now Juan Mir, we already know where he's going next year. He's going to MotoGP, uh, whether he wins any races this year or not in Moto Two. Um, so we're going to move on from him. He, he's been praised plenty this year, so I don't think he'll mind if we skip over him for one weekend. Mm. Um, but third place straight, Luca Marini, who uh, got his second consecutive front row start. He was on front row Assen uh, a couple of weeks ago and then qualified second behind Matteo Pacini. Uh, more on him in a second. Uh, this weekend at the Saxon Ring. And we've seen this this, this year already, haven't we, in Moto2? There seems to be this sort of run of riders who seem to come out of the pack, break out of the pack that we weren't expecting. Marcel Schrotter's been one. Um, Fabio Quattararo was one um, a couple right. of times ago. And now Luca Marini, another. 
um, who are just, you know, without any great um, Moto 3 track record behind them, are really establishing themselves in Moto 2. I mean, it shows, first of all, that you can't necessarily write off a rider. If they're not great in Moto 3, you shouldn't just write the guys off. They clearly, you know, could still have a future. Marini's come back through the CEV Moto 2 series to, to get back into Grand Prix. Um, but it also, again, just goes to show, as we've discussed in previous weeks, just how much talent the VR46 Academy is producing. I mean, Banyaya is another, another that's leading the championship, but Marini's one that up until three weeks ago, we'd never even discussed. It's weird because, like, Marini was was pretty good, like, at, at like the start of last season, but his, his Moto2 season went completely tits up last season. And he was always a solid sort of top 10 guy, but never this. Yeah. Never to the point where you're thinking podiums um, on a regular basis. And, you know, him being teammates to Banyaya probably didn't help last year when Banyaya was, you know, rookie of the year and, and, you know, was becoming the breakout star of the class as we're seeing, you know, last year and now, obviously, as championship leader. But, yeah, I, I did not think Marini was going to be a guy that could potentially challenge for ace wins all of a sudden. And... Moto2's had this strange knack of doing this this season where it's, it's made three or four dudes you wouldn't normally expect to be contenders and suddenly made them relevant again. Like Luca Marini's one, Fabio Quattararo, Marcel Schrotter very quietly is putting together quite a handy little season at the moment as well. Um, with, you know, he was in the top six again this time around and you know, was again was challenging for a podium spot in the early going um, as well. So Xavier Vierge, another guy that's you know been in that top six to eight range and just got on the podium on occasions, challenged for wins. Moto2 does that where, like, like, because it is a sport of such fine margins, because there's only two and a half make competitive chassis really in the field, and because it is such a, a series based on rider greatness, if a guy likes the circuit and the bike's performing well, he can get up the field and surprise some people. Mm. Um, that's the beauty of Moto2. It's such fine margins that... If a guy has a good day, he can have a really, really good day, and that's what Luca Marini clearly had at the Sanction Ring weekend long, and it was it was a it was a brilliant podium, and could have easily been a race win on another day. Um, very, very fast indeed. Him, Mir, and Binder were the class of the field this time round. Hmm. I mean, there, there are there are so many riders who will be looking at next year in the huge, almost the reset we're having in Moto Two, where they're going to the the triple triumphs for next year. Um, bikes that are much closer to MotoGP bikes, much, bikes that are much more. Um, complicated and and refined electronically um, than these current bikes are, which are essentially Honda Supersport bikes in drag. Um, and Marini will be one of them. Uh, Binder will be one. There'll be so many riders. Schrotter, Vieke, will be looking at next year thinking, well, this essentially is Moto2 starting all over again and it's a completely blank sheet of paper and um, we can maybe target next year and yeah, there, it's going to be so wide open next year and there are so many riders now who are sh- stepping to the fore and showing that they could be a real contender next year um, in Moto2 Miguel Oliveira won't be one of them as we've mentioned he's going to MotoGP next year and Andre, I keep saying there is no way that Miguel Oliveira is going to be able to win this championship if he keeps qualifying badly but <laughs> this is another weekend where he's qualified 15th <laughs> he's finished 4th Banyaya's hit trouble. He's closed the gap in the championship. Maybe he will do. Yeah, I mean, you could only beat who they put in front of you. Then Banyaya had just just had a bit of rotten luck, really. I mean, dreadful. We luck. saw it. Dreadful luck. I mean, Matteo Pastini, who just has become so crash happy once again, um, had another big one on the final corner, and about and, you know, 
he goes down and Pekka Baniaya, uh, you know, did in one sense was lucky not to get collected in it, but uh, at the same time he was a- he was able to keep it upright. But unfortunately, he obviously lost significant time, dropped down to about eighteenth place. He was down to. Yeah, GCU he was all the way at the back of the field because basically he had to get out of the way and basically take evasive action um, due to, you know, due to the being caught up um, in um, in Pacini's accident. So, yeah, by now he had to claw his way back up into the field um, as uh, from from outside of the points, essentially from 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 the back of the field, um, which is a real shame. Um because I think Bandai could have been in that leading group and challenging for a win otherwise, and he just caught, just, just got caught up in fights with the wrong people, and uh, yeah, it essentially ruined his weekend. Only four points taken from a top place finish, and Miguel, who again wasn't looking particularly impressive this weekend by any stretch, but fourth place, you know, is significant points gained. It's, it's, it's back down to a seven point championship lead again after his dodgy Assen round where he finished sixth and and Pekka Bandai won. So. Next thing you know, they've been cancelled out again, and we're back where we started again. And it's it's the nature of Moto Two and, and Grand Prix motorcycle racing, where you never quite know what's going to happen from one round to the one round to the next. No, it's incredible, and like I can say, I keep saying this, but I, I, the more and more I, I see in Moto Two, the more I think I might end up being wrong this year. Where Miguel Oliveira now at the halfway stage or approaching the halfway stage of the season is seven points off the championship lead, um, with qualifying positions this year of fourth, seventh, twelfth, fourteenth. 10th, 11th, 17th, 17th, and 15th. Um, that's that's where he started. Probably. He hasn't been on the front row all year. Um, and he's spent more time on the grid outside the front three rows than he has inside them. Um, yet he's still seven points off the lead. Um, and KTM will still be thinking to themselves, if we finish this year as strong as we finished last year, all we have to do is be within range going to those final five races. And we've got a real shot at this. Um, right. and, and Oliveira will be thinking that himself. So, so maybe they are still championship, well, not favourites, but they they maybe even if with this clear and glaring weakness of not being able to qualify, maybe they will still be able to overcome it because they are just so good in the races. They're so good at nursing their tyres through races. Oliveira seems to be able to have this knack of getting through the field early on, even if when he does qualify badly, and uh-huh. he's able to just clear his way through early on with a good start and some aggressive overtaking that. Maybe they will overcome it. Um, we shall see. Um, but as it is, um, Oliveira finished fourth last weekend from 15th on the grid. Just there behind him was Sam Lowe's in fifth. Uh, that's his best result of the year. Marcel Schrotter, the home favourite, sixth, ahead of his teammate Javi Vierke, seventh. Simone Corsi, eighth. Fabio Quartararo in ninth. Now, he beat Jorge Navarro to ninth by one thousandth of a second over the line. <laughs> It was that close. Um, but I, I want to quickly mention Quartararo before we move on to Moto3, Jay, for one reason, because we haven't discussed the big rumours surrounding Quartararo yet. Um, it's it's amazing how a rider can go to being favourite of the month. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Quartararo when I say that. Um, but we've only really seen him as a potential top-tier Moto2 rider since Catalunya. Yet right. he seems to be the odds-on favourite for the second Patronus Yamaha MotoGP ride. Can you believe that? I don't see it. I like, I like in, t- in terms Too of early viability, for me. yeah, I, I think they've jumped the gun here. To like, 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 like they, they looked at those t- the, the the win in Catalonia and then the second that Aston and thought, oh, he's the ticket. Yeah, and like Just I'm not convinced. Yeah, like, like, like what's the rush? <laughs> If you're looking at Moto Two, why wouldn't you take a, Why wouldn't you look at Lorenzo Baldassare? 
experience and has had race wins and has been a, a, a higher ranking contender for for longer than Quattararo has, for example. You know, or Alex Marquez even, who again has got a lot of Moto2 experience and has won multiple races in the class. I don't see how Quattararo is is a better prospect hmm. than any of those guys I mentioned, or even giving Alvaro Bautista a call and saying, hey, want to try this Yamaha? Like, Bautista's a really good rider, and he's he's... he's He's done a very he's done a very good job of developing bikes that aren't very good, like that, like the Ducati he's on now, like the Aprilia when he was over there with Stefan Bradl a couple of years back. Bautista was in the top ten you know, on a on a regular basis before he left the team to go back to to go, to go back to what we now know as Asmar slash you know Ang- the Angel Nieto team. So uh, for me, I don't like. I think Bautista should be the number one name for that seat. I don't understand how people are, are reaching to Quattara. I think that's. I think that's too soon. Yeah, like, yeah I don't. I don't think Quattara. I'm not saying. I don't think Dre is. We're not saying Quattararo can't be a MotoGP rider in the future. I'm sure no, he will be. Um, but but what's the rush? He's he doesn't turn twenty until April. Um, I, I, I don't right. understand what the rush is to get him on a MotoGP bike when he's only had a year and a half in Moto Two. Um, he's only just taken his first win. Just let the kid develop. Let the kid learn. I mean, he's 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 been he's been touted, and I think this is part of the reason why he has struggled so much compared to what we expected. It's because he's been touted so much. He's been built up as the French Marquez. Um, mm-hmm. He's been he's been given this incredible build up in his career, and I think the pressure got to him in Moto Three. He he couldn't live up to the immense hype that was being put on him. Um, and and I just fear for Fabio that if you if you fast track him into MotoGP next year, as once again as this is the kid who's got the potential to be the next Marquez. I fear you're going to be back where you were with him in Moto3, where he just can't handle the pressure of it. Um, yeah. And, and I just worry for Fabio. I don't think it would be the best thing for him to put him straight into MotoGP next year, even if it is with a team that would be would be a young team. He'd have Franco Mobidelli as, as his teammate, who, of course, is a Moto2 champion. Um, so the pressure, in many ways, wouldn't be on him to deliver the results for that team. But... Yeah, I just think too much too soon. Just let the kid develop. Let the kid... I mean, put even if you put him on a stronger bike next year, like put him at Mark VDS next year um, with alongside Alex Marquez because I don't think he's going to win a Moto2 title on a speed-up. Um, right. But, yeah, don't put him on a MotoGP next year. I'm not, again, we're not saying he won't be a MotoGP rider and that he can't have a great career and a great future in MotoGP, but he's not ready for it yet. Anyway, Moto2 Championship standings. Here's how they look at the moment um, with nine races gone. Um, Quattararo, as it stands at the moment, is uh, down in ninth in the championship, same place he finished last weekend's racing. Um, it's Bagnaia leading it by seven from Oliveira. Alex Marquez only finished 13th last weekend, beaten by Bagnaia at the final corner. Um, he's now 35 points off the lead. So on a weekend where Bagnaia finished 12th and Marquez had a real chance to blast his way back into contention, he finished one place behind Pekka. Um Joao yeah. Mir is fourth. Um, now he's gone past Baldessari, who had that um, pretty poor crash approaching the Omega corner. Um, he's uh, fifth now on 93 points, two behind Marquez. Uh, Brad Binder's up to sixth on 91. Uh, Vieke is seventh on 79. Marcel Schrotter eighth on 73. Quartararo is ninth on 72. And Mattia Pacini, who has now failed to score in four of the last five races, is tenth on 63 points he's had two pole positions in that time and he has crashed from both of them
Uh, right, Moto3 very quickly before we move on to the news. And uh, a decent Moto3 race, it's fair to say, last weekend. Not one of the all-time classics that we've seen in Moto3. Um, we did see the uh, bunch fighting in Moto3 that we haven't seen for a while. Jorge Martin did his usual trick early on of trying to break them, trying to stretch them out early on. Couldn't quite do it this time. The field stayed together um, in the early stages. Um, and we saw midway through, Dre, why Jorge Martin is always so keen to stretch the field out and ensure that there is not much of a group behind him because, as Martin has seen on many occasions this season, trouble seems to find him um, on the racetrack. But I'm not so sure he expected that trouble to come in the form of his teammate. Exactly. Like, DJ Antonio had a very, very big near miss there. Well, yeah, yeah, he crashed that himself, losing the front into turn one. But uh, he came about three inches away from uh, collecting Jorge Martin, and Martin must have been thinking in his helmet, oh, no, not again. Um, for, that would have been the third time this season that would have happened for poor Martin. And, no, luckily he was able to dodge it this time. He ended up falling back to third, obviously trying to take evasive action um, for that incident. But... Uh, a strong fight back from Martin there, got back to the front of the field. And again, it was with about seven laps to go. Martin pulls the pin, gets his head down, sets a couple of really fast laps and yeah, broke broke the toe and then that was it. Like Marco Bezecchi was the only guy in the same postcode. It kind of tailed off from your usual madcap Moto3 race ending where the race leader and then eventually second place has, has, has both taken off into the distance. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was stark, wasn't it? The way he suddenly pulled the pin and gapped them. I mean, it was Bezeki was the guy running in second place at the point where Martin pulled the pin, and there was a there was an instant further back that split that second group up. I think it was Albert Arenas who was running in third, the uh, the Le Mans winner, um, who went down at turn twelve, the fault corner at the bottom of the waterfall at the end of the back straight. He was running third, which left a huge gap behind Bezeki back to the second group, um, led by John McPhee at the time in fourth, or fourth became third. Um, so Bezeki was all on his own trying to chase Martin down and just simply didn't have the pace to do it. Um, and obviously, before we knew it, Bezeki had been dragged back into the clutches of the group behind him and was more preoccupied with them than he was for trying to chase Martin down. And before we knew it, Martin was two and a half seconds clear um, at the front of the field. Um, as far as Dijon Antonio is concerned, though, and we'll talk about the two championship frontrunners in a moment, but um, this championship has taken so many twists this season it looked like it was going to be martin and bezeki then three riders gian antonio canet and bashini cl- closed back in um around catalonia time um and Assen as well now we've spoken about gian antonio before haven't we in that when you've got that consistency to fall back on you really cannot afford a crash or afford a bad result now he kind of got let off the hook in catalonia where he went off and came back to finish seventh but this is the kind of result where Dijan Antonio doesn't have the race wins to prop him up. This is the kind of result he could not afford. It's his first DNF of the season. He got away with that one in Salinia where he crashed, got back on it, and due to the sheer rate of attrition, was able to claw his way back up into the top seven. This was a bad time for his first crash of the yeah, season. He was the last rider remaining to score points at every round. Yeah, and he's now wiped that out. So, yeah, and a race where his teammate has taken the, the full 25 points. That's now put him 39 off the championship lead and going into the summer break. And that's a long way back for Fabio to go when Jorge Martin has the ability to win any race on paper now just because of how fast he is. It's it's getting to a point where if Martin gets a clear shot at it, he's going to win. Like, he's had three DNFs. Two of them were not his fault. He's had the 11th in Argentina, which, again, was an unpredictable 
predictable flag to flag yeah, race, which I don't think anybody. Yeah, started from the pit lane on that one and came back through the field. But every other race, he's won. This is his f- that's his fifth race win of the season in nine rounds. And amazingly, due to Pizzecki's sheer consistency, he's only got a seven-point lead to show for it. But Fabio, if Fabio's not going to win, like Pizzecki, he needs podiums on a consistent basis. And he just hasn't got that. He's only had two of them this season. And he's not going to win this title on fourths and fifths and sevenths. It's just not going to happen. And when you get a DNF like that, it couldn't have come at a worse time, especially when Jorge Martin is, you know, again, like winning. He's won, the, he's won back-to-back. He's won three of the last four. And in, in those four races, DG's gone third, seventh, ninth retirement. He's not going to win the title doing that. And that's a real hammer blow to his championship campaign. It looks like Bastianini must sort of tumbled out of contention as well. He had a crash um, during the race as well. Not like he was in any danger of, you know, scoring good points at the time. I think he was outside the points already by the point he crashed in that race. But that is an A. Bastianini's fourth retirement of the season. That's one more than Martins had um, this mm-hmm. year. So uh, Bastianini is now. Uh, 46 points off the lead. Canet is just about clinging on to it. He's a point ahead of Gian Antonio. He's, so he's 38 off the lead. Uh, but he could only manage fifth um, at the second last weekend, although he did set the fastest lap on his way to doing that. So he was one of those who just got caught in the wrong group um, and couldn't recover from that. Um, by the front, Dre, we're having this classic tortoise and the hare battle, aren't we, at the front of the championship between mm. Martin and Bezecchi. Um And I say this a lot in, in, in championship battles where... You know, you don't get any extra points just because you win it by three seconds than you do if you win it by, you know, half a bike length. Um, so Martin winning the race by as big a margin as he did, it still only got him five points more because Bezeki once again, did a brilliant job of limiting the damage and finishing second. Uh, and whilst we've we've discussed Martin and talked about how whenever he has a clear run to the flag and doesn't have problems, he wins the race. Whenever Bezeki's had a clear run to the flag, Dre, and, won- and not had any issues, he's always on the podium. Um, yep. He had that one incident in Qatar where he got knocked off from a podium position, let's not forget, by his teammate Colin mm-hmm. File in Qatar. He's then had, what, six win, uh, six podiums this year, including the win in Argentina. Um, four second places plus a third as well. And Pazeki, every time we ask, ask questions about him, every time we sort of doubt this kid, he comes up with a response. He had that poor crash on the final lap in Assen um, when he was running fourth. And we were wondering, how is this kid going to react to this? He reacts by turning up at the next round at the Saxon ring. Martin's out front, so he knows that the best he can manage to keep his championship hopes intact is to finish second. That's exactly what he does. Screwed his head back on, dug deep, and got a clear second place in the end where he wasn't challenged for the last few laps. And Yeah, as you mentioned, Jorge Martin has won three of the last four. Marco Bezecchi has been second in three of the last four. So like, he's, and he's, he's only, only seven lost... points back. Yeah, he's only seven points back. He's only, he's only had a net loss of 15 points in the last four rounds, despite the fact that Martin's been the class of the field. Bezeki's always there. And if he, again, if he gets a clear run, he's, he's on the podium. And he loves second place. He has his fourth second place result of the season so far. And he, it's showing that he is an elite runner in Moto3 now. If he gets a clear run, he's, he's in the leading group and he's getting on the podium. And that's what he needs to do to to stay as a Tata contender. I mean, that's how Dovi kept in the fight with Marquez for so long in the top flight last year. It was a it was a simple matter of well, if you can keep it going and, and, and if you can keep getting consistent results in there, there's only so much the other guy can do. And you know, he'll he'll he could, he could afford to to lose five points here and there. He's still in the mix, and even despite the silly accident he had at Aston. 
Um, he's only seven points off Martin in the top, and that's that's more than good enough at the moment. So he said, yeah, you know, right, right now, Bezeki is still in a really good spot, and he just needs to embrace that and just keep rolling. His ch- he will have chances to win races in the future. I'm, I'm dead certain of that. He's got more than enough quality to do so. Yeah, he continues to impress me, does Bezeki, with, with every race that he, that he does. The maturity that he's showing for a rider who is only in his second full season um, as a Grand Prix rider. Um, it is terrific and yeah as I mentioned it's looking like a bit of a tortoise and the hare title battle this year between Martin and Bezeki where it's pretty clear who the fastest is um, it's mm-hmm. Martin um, but Bezeki is never far away from him he's always close enough to take any advantage of any issues that Martin has and if Martin continues to have races where he fails to reach the chequered flag for whatever reason Bezeki is always going to be there to capitalize on it um, and it's just a case of if Martin can limit the errors and continue to put trouble free races together, he wins this championship. If he doesn't, yes. I think Bezeki is more than good enough and more than close enough to capitalize and take it, take it for himself. So we'll Three. see uh, how it pans out. Um, Martin, then the winner from Bezeki. Uh, John McPhee, um, we're not quite hey. as uh, up in arms about it as Keith Hewan was, uh, but nevertheless, great weekend and great result for him. His first podium uh, of the year um, in third position. Uh, Marcos Ramirez in fourth. Now, he has had two podiums this season, none of which he took on the road, both of which were promoted into podiums by post-race penalties. Um, but um, fourth for him... Yeah, they still count, <laughs> but fourth position is pretty much equals his best result on the track this year. Um, fifth went to Aaron Cannett, as we've told you. Jean Messia, the second of the uh, best of capital Dubai bikes, teammates Ramirez in sixth. Um, that is um, just... Well, in fact, he's had two results better than that this season. He's had a fourth and a fifth already this season, but Messia, when he gets it right, he's right up the front, and he's so far leading Absolutely. the rookie of the year battle ahead of Alonso Lopez. Uh, Jakob Confile seventh. Philip Ertel, the home favourite, eighth. Uh, Ralph Fernandez, his race deserves a mention. What a ride he had. He had to run off track, much like Banyaya did in the Moto 2 race um, after getting knocked off early on in the race. Um, he came back to finish ninth, um, which is Brilliant. an incredible result for Fernandez in what is just his second race of the year. He was stepping in for the injured Darren Binder. Uh, Fernandez, who uh, is currently the championship leader, I believe, in the Junior World Championship in Moto3 uh, on the mm. CEV program. Uh, he finished ninth, so uh, he's a rider to keep an eye on for the future. Um, just behind him was the uh, former Red Bull Rookies champion, Ayumu Sasaki, in 10th position. Rest of the points were handed out by Adam Noradin, Andrea Migno, Lorenzo Della Porta, Nicola Bulliger, who scored points again in 14th, and the current Red Bull Rookies champion, Kazuki Masaki. Um, took the final point in 15th. Quickly on Red Bull Rookies, while we're talking about it, they had two races at the Saxony last weekend. Both were won by either of the Turkish Onchu twins. Dennis and Chan took a win each and a second each uh, in the two races last weekend. They are both Moto3 bound in the future and they might be sooner than you think because uh, MotoGP have confirmed they have extended the champion's rule that they apply to the Junior World Championship where the champion can enter Moto3 no matter how young they are. They've now extended that to the Red Bull rookies as well. Um, so nice. should either of the Onchu twins, who neither are old enough yet to race in Grand Prix, should either of them win the Red Bull Rookies Championship this season, they would be eligible to race in Grand Prix next year. Um, next round of all of these classes that I've just mentioned, next round of the championship on the other side of the summer break, first weekend of August, the Czech Grand Prix at Brno, where we haven't addressed this on air, but one of the two of us is actually going to be there. Um, we haven't actually mentioned this on air, Dre, but Dre, you are heading for the Czech Grand Prix at Bruno. First of all, tell the listeners how this came about, but also just how damn excited are you for this? Because by all accounts, as a spectator, as a fan, Bruno is as good an experience as you'll find anywhere on the calendar. 
Oh god, yeah. I got I got really lucky on this one. I actually won a competition with Monster Energy to um to, to go to to go to the Bruno um qualifying and race day tickets, put you up in a four star hotel for for, for for three nights and yeah, I can't wait. It's it's super exciting for that to happen. Um I think it's fantastic. Um Bruno like that's that's one of the real blue ribbon rounds on the calendar. If you ask me, you know, you'll get massive over a hundred thousand fans on race day. Um, massive tracks of fans just spread out all over the place. Um, and yeah, as a spectator sport, bike racing is one thing. Watching it on TV, there's a guy that's been to Brands a couple of times now um, for the, for for British Superbikes. I can I can tell you now, it's even more incredible a rush in person. The noise. The, the 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 sense of speed the sound it's it's unbelievable um it's it, it's it's truly a remarkable event and uh yeah i, I can't wait i'm really excited to go down there i've got the flights booked uh, a couple of days ago so yeah i'm really excited for it so thanks to monster energy uh for letting for for, for giving your boy a victory on this one mm-hmm. so uh yeah i will be in Bruno on saturday and sunday um for the race weekend can't wait for that august 5th and 6th yeah, we'll have uh, we'll have Dre's postcard from the uh, Czech Grand Prix on the week on the bike line following that um, <laughs> in August. Um, right then, on to the news, and uh, we've got a lot of World Superbike news to bring you because um, a lot of contracts have been signed this week. First Did of all, let's talk. One? First of all, let's talk. Tell you about the uh, contract that isn't being signed and the rider that's leaving his uh, team of so many years. Tom Sykes is leaving Kawasaki. That is now official um, at the end of this year. Um, now, I could go on to a full-scale rant once again about how the uh, press release that Kawasaki released didn't exactly seem all too congratulatory towards Tom no. Sykes. It was more of a case of, right, now's the time to move on, results haven't been good enough, that sort of thing, rather than uh, congratulating Sykes for what he's done for that team. Because um, Kawasaki owe so much to Tom Sykes for what they've achieved in MotoGP. Um, Tom Sykes ended their 20-year run for a world championship back in 2013. He won the title for them, of course, but that year... Um, having come within half a point of winning it the year before. Um, he's played so much of a role in the development of the ZX-10R into the dominant juggernaut of a bike that it is nowadays. You could argue that perhaps Jonathan Ray wouldn't have been compelled to join this team if it had it not for the, the performances that Sykes have put in the development of that bike into turning it into such a viable option for Ray. Um, now, Jonathan Ray has, of course, taken that on a further step and become an absolute phenomenon and, a, and you know the greatest world super rider of them all. Um but I still don't think the relationship... I think it kind of reflects just how badly the relationship has deteriorated between Sykes and Kawasaki, that there wasn't really much fanfare for this um, during the week. And I hope there is some sort of marking of this before the season's out. And I hope Tom Sykes at least takes another victory before he's out of this team at the end of the year, because I think he deserves one more moment of celebration with Kawasaki. Um, but in terms of what this means for the team, first of all, Dre, it's looking like Leon Haslam's going to move into that team next year. Um, mm. And... I guess from Kawasaki's point of view, when you've got the greatest rider in the history of the series who's still at his absolute best in Jonathan Ray, it takes a little bit of pressure off who you have on the other bike. And I guess when you've got a rider on the other bike who's perhaps been more of a uh, destabilizing effect than than anything, than really delivering any kind of results on track, I guess it was best for both parties that they, they called an end to it. Yeah, I mean, Tom's Tom commented on 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 the departure on World Superbike's website, and I I think the words he used to describe it was like a the sense of like a huge weight had been lifted off his shoulders, which is not how you normally describe leaving a Losing team. That is, you know, 
yeah, like losing your job and basically moving on as a team that you know you've had all your multiplayer success with in the last. Especially few years. when you know that the next move is definitely going to be down. Exactly, you know it's going to be worse. You know it's going to be a step down, and Sykes is not a top tier desirable rider in the context of Worlds anymore, and that's a real shame. Um, the, the sport seems to have moved on a little bit now with Vandermark, Eugene Laverty, and you know other riders like Top like Top Rack Rosgatiloglu being like basically being arguably the three biggest uh, prospects going forward. That's probably going to be the future of the sport in that sense, and. Yeah, it's it's it, I I I said on Twitter when 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 the press conference was or the press release was and it was you know came through, I said I felt sad. I felt genuinely sad that like Tom Sykes, that has basically been the backbone of Kawasaki for the last seven or eight years, that it's ended um, this way. It's ended this way. It's ended with such a like a seeming such a sad like what basically two paragraph press release for a guy that's had over two hundred and fifty. We'll have over two hundred and fifty starts for the team by the time this season ends. A guy that won you a world championship for your team for the first time in 20 years and could have easily had two more if it wasn't for a handful of points either way. Losing again, losing a world title by half a point to Max Biaggi is a. You know, there's there's no more greater kick in the teeth than that if you ask me. Um, but yeah, like I said, the the, the 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 basically the reason that the team has gotten to this point where again, like Jonathan Ray was you know desirable enough to come and has basically turned it into a juggernaut. Like he owes Tom Sykes a huge debt of gratitude for turning that that Ninja ZX, ZX10R into the to, into the weapon that it is now. And a lot of that will boil down to Tom Sykes and him being the backbone of Kawasaki for the last half decade. And yeah, it's it's for me it's very sad that Sykes has had to come out of the sport this way because he's he, he's he's done an incredible amount of work for that team. He's put the factory back on the map. He's he's justified Kawasaki not being in MotoGP anymore. Um I would argue because of you know the 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 amount of press and the amount of success it's brought them without having to spend ten times more while being in Grand Prix motorcycle racing now, like Sykes is part of the vindication of Kawasaki going to worlds and basically dominating that instead, so it's a real shame that Sykes has come out in such a bitter fashion by the looks of it i mean we 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 all saw the interviews we all saw the conversations mm. that Sykes had had with the media and you know the, the the for lack of a better term the bitterness that's come from the fallout and it's a shame it's had to end that way because those two made when, when those two were the making of each other no matter which way you slice it hmm. just to give, pick out some some snippets from this press release that kawasaki issued um earlier this week um they refer to tom seeking a new challenge for 2019 having delivered maximum effort across a total of nine years of racing and development on kawasaki machinery um they also refer to Sykes's um, history with the team. They say he remains a racing force to be admired by fans and feared by rivals uh, in equal measure. Um, they say that they credit him with changing the way Kawasaki approached the rigors of superbike racing while playing a large role in the development of the Ninja ZX-10R package. Um, Sykes himself um, says that he believes he's now the best rider he's ever been and has the experience and performance to keep winning. So he's now decided to make a step away from the KRT project to look for new goals and challenges. Um, he says, I'm determined to enjoy my racing and making this announcement effectively ends all speculation. The timing of this big career decision is never easy, but it is especially difficult as my personal life also faces big changes. Um, regarding this, I feel the weight of pressure has been slightly lifted from my shoulders and I'm sure 2019 will allow me to operate at full capacity. The comments that I didn't like were the comments from Green Roder, who's the KRT team manager. 
Um, and I'll read them to you in full. He says, It has been a busy few weeks recently, and for sure we have talked many hours internally. In the most recent rounds, Tom's concentration was not able to be the best as he was dealing with a big decision, apart from some family points to solve. This has taken a lot of his concentration over the past two years. I hope this final confirmation will give us room to finish the year in the same way we dominated in Assen. We have a big job to do until the end of the year, so it is not time to say goodbye yet. Of course, this is an announcement of intentions for 2019, but the more important is to work hard to finish the year with the same determination that we started with. Um, that that sort of struck me, to paraphrase it, as if, well, you know, he's, he's not been fully on the ball the last two years, so we're now moving ahead to next year and thinking of next year. Uh, is how I, I read that, which I, it was slightly disappointing. Um, but if, just to give you some of Sykes' career statistics with, with Kawasaki, it is nine years with the team, because um, one of which was while P, Paul Bird running the team, eight years while it's been the motorcard Spanish uh, team running Kawasaki. Of course, the World Championship in 2013, he has started to this day 222 World Superbike races for Kawasaki. Um, that's 252 all time. 30, of course, weren't on a Kawasaki. 30 of them were with Yamaha. All 34 of his career wins have come for Kawasaki. 105 career podiums for Kawasaki. 46 poles that you know about. That's an all-time World Superbike record. 76 times he started on the front row. And 38 fastest laps um, over the course of the last nine years with Kawasaki. That, by any measure, is an outstanding World Superbike record. Um, I mean, he's, he's fourth all time for career race wins in the series with 34. Only Fogarty, Ray, and I believe Hager have won more um, in the World Superbike Championship ever. Um, so it's an incredible record by any measure that Sykes has. Um, but what chance, Dre, does he have of adding to any of those in the future, given the options that are available to him? I have to say... Slim to none, because um, like, as you mentioned, anything from here is going to be a step down. There's no, there's no question there. Kawasaki are the juggernauts; they are for good reason. Um, it's looking like it's two most likely scenarios here is you know possibly going to Red Bull Honda with uh, with Leon Camia with the Honda and seeing as there's a challenge. Can he yeah, be, which can involves he be putting a lot of faith in a project that is still very early in its development. Yeah, it's still a long way off where they need to be. I think they're, they're, they're worse off in context compared to their BSB counterparts at the moment when it comes to developing the Fireblade um, or the latest Fireblade that they've got there now. Um, the other option seems to be potentially GRC, who are stepping up from World Supersport next year into the in, you know, with, with a, a couple of R1s, and he could be the guy to spearhead that team. However, it's looking like Marco Melandri is going to be lead rider for that team at least, and then maybe one of their super sport riders, either Federico Caracasulo or Lucas Mahias being the more likely options, obviously the, the current reigning super sport series champion. So um, no matter which way you slice it, the situations aren't pretty. I mean, I liked your BSB suggestion. I'm sure teams would be going in for him if they knew Sykes was available. Mm. Um, I don't know if Sykes is interested in going back home and racing domestically in the, in, in the British Superbike Championship again. Um, but the, the, in terms of World Superbike paddock options, really, Jonathan Ray's opened the floodgates for, for Silly Season. And as, as we mentioned, an ideal spot for him just got taken off the table today. So... By, by the looks of it, the options for Sykes aren't great, which is amazing that a rider of his caliber might be frozen out of the grid entirely for 2019, which is crazy to me. Mm, yeah, he's still definitely good enough to command a spot on the grid. I mean, the other option that's perhaps available to him is the Milwaukee team um, that may well be running BMWs next year as opposed to the Aprilia's they currently run. 
Um, and I think yeah. that would hinge largely on Eugene Laverty going to Ducati, which might well be the, the likeliest next move in the rider market. Because I think if Laverty goes to Ducati, that leaves Aprilia with a big hole to fill. And they'd ideally want... I mean, Salvador is not inexperienced by any means, but he's he's not Eugene Laverty. And Milwaukee would want an experienced top-level or close to top-level rider to replace Laverty. And Sykes is the only one available that would fit that bill. Um, to right. join that team and replace Eugene Laverty. So that might be an option for him. Um, in terms of Red Bull Honda, I think for the, from Red Bull Honda's point of view, looking at what they need and where they're trying to get to, Sykes would be an ideal rider for them in terms of they, you know, they've already got Camier, who's a great development rider and trying to, you know, he's got so much knowledge and trying to, you know, they're trying to get him to help build a project there. Sykes would be the perfect teammate in many respects because he's already shown that, I mean, look what he's helped build Kawasaki into. Um, of course, that wasn't something that Tom Sykes did alone, um, but he certainly played a key role in it. And Red Bull Honda would be looking at the work that Sykes did over nine years at Kawasaki and thinking he would have a lot to offer this project as we try and build this Fireblade into a viable front-running contender in this series as well. But it's a case of whether Sykes wants that challenge himself. I mean, he says he wants a new challenge, but we're going to find out how badly he wants a challenge and what kind of challenge he's after. Um, and I think that will be answered when we find out what his next career move is. Um, of course, when that is announced, we'll tell you all about it uh, here on Bike Live. Um, one option that is no longer open to him is the uh, the berths or the yeah, the two berths that were available at the Pata Yamaha World Superbike official team, because both of those are going to be sticking with the riders who occupy them currently. Alex Lowe's and Michael Van der Mark uh, are both signed contract extensions for next season. Dre and I have to say, given the way these two riders have both stepped up around sort of. You know, pretty much since the spring. They've both, of course, now won races in this championship. Van der Mark has won a couple. Alex Lowe's took his first win at Bruno. Those victories and the way those riders have performed since kind of made this a formality for Yamaha. Yeah, they had to they had to tie them both down. I don't think anybody else better was going to be coming along. Van der Mark in his own right has still got an outside chance of finishing second in the championship this year, which would be a phenomenal achievement. Um, for the Yamaha, if he can even get in the top three, that would be a tremendous bit of progress for for the Pata Yamaha team in general. Van der Mark's been exceptional this season. Alex Lowe's has been good in his own right. He's not been quite on Van der Mark's level this year, but even he has stepped forward with his, his, his usual brand of consistency of good results and got that first win and got the monkey off his back at Bruno to take that first W. So. Yeah, like the team itself has genuinely made progress this year. They've, they've gone from podium sitters on occasion to legitimately winning multiple races. And that's a great step forward for the Yamaha team. And when you've got a step forward like that, why would you want to change riders? Like you've, you've already got two guys who are riding at a very high level. So stick with it. Absolutely stick with what you've got and see what you can do next year. See if you can really bring the fight to Kawasaki and Ducati on a more frequent basis. Um but yeah, for me, it's a no-brainer. If you if you tie both those riders down, I would tie both of them down. That's as I decided. Chaz Davies isn't going anywhere. He's staying at Ducati for next season, but he's he's had a difficult start to the summer break. He's broken his collarbone in a training accident um, this week, yeah. which is ruling him out of Ducati's Race of Champions event this weekend at Mizano, um, which would have given him an opportunity to ride the new V4 Padagali. He won't be able to do that now. Um Chaz Davies is kind of grateful that the World Superbike summer break is so long um, because he's not going to miss any racing. They don't race again until um, mid-September at Portimao. There is an official test at Portimao starting on August the 23rd. Um, so he's still got another month until that uh, comes around. So Chaz Davies, 
Um, not exactly in the best of shape at the moment, but not an awful lot in terms of his championship for the season. Not a lot has been lost um, through that. Uh, Leon Kami is another rider who's been injured lately. He's fractured a vertebrae and testing for the Suzuka 8-hour. Um, but this one is a disappointment, no. Dre, because Leon Kamiya is going to miss racing. More to the point, he's going to miss the race he was testing for. No! Of, of, of all the times for the ambulance chaser to get hurt, now is the time. Okay, thanks a bunch, racing gods. Um, not, not, not nice. Um, yes, fractured a vertebrae in his back. He's going to miss Suzuka eight hours due to that injury. And um, A nice replacement. They're bringing in PJ Jacobson from the World Superbike Series to, 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 to fill in his place for... For the weekend which is a nice pull good, good to see some american influence on the front field which is nice to see but uh yeah get well soon Leo, and that is an, an awful bit of luck because i was really excited to see Camier at the eight hours and mm. um, he was basically spearheading the honda team this year given that crutchlow missed out on the opportunity to go again he's always wanted to do it but uh in his eyes the timing's never quite worked out unfortunately but um yeah it's it's a real shame that the, the, the Camier, who's one of the headline names of this year's mm. suzuka eight hours missing out that's a real bummer but uh, best of luck to Jacobson for the info yeah uh, Randy Deponier is also been drafted in uh, for Honda for the 8 hour for next week next week's Bike Live episode 70 we will uh, give you much more of an in-depth preview for the Suzuka 8 hour which is a race we're very excited about uh, oh, it yes. takes place next weekend um, the entire race is live on Eurosport if you're a British listener or if you're listening in Europe you'll be able to watch that race live um, slight warning you might need the energy drinks and the coffee to get through it because it's on right through the night mm. Uh, next Saturday night, um, July the 28th. But uh, but it is one of the jewels of the motorcycle racing calendar. So many big names taking part in this race. Um, Jonathan Ray, for one, the world champion, um, is going to be riding in it. Lowe's and Van der Mark are going to be in it. Um, Leon Haslam is going to be in it as teammates of Ray. Nakagami of MotoGP is going to be in it. Um, we've already mentioned you, Jacobson, Dupunier, Kianari, Bradley Ray, Gintoli. So many big names at the 8th hour this year. Um, across the various manufacturers who take this race so, so seriously. They want oh, to win yeah, it they badly. Really want to win this, yeah. uh, Kawasaki, of course, have only ever won it once, and they want to win it so badly again that they brought in the greatest world superbike rider of all time to try and win it for them. Um, so we'll preview it in much greater depth <laughs> next week um, here Indeed. on Bike Live episode 70, the Super 8 Hour, which is just a week away. Um, quick Moto 2 news before we finish, or before we move on to this weekend and what's coming up. Alex Marquez is staying put next year as well. Uh, he's staying with the Mark BDS team, which, of course, won't be racing a MotoGP next year um, due to the uh, political and financial issues, which are way too complicated in detail for us to get into here. Um, but long story short, they're not racing a MotoGP, but are racing in Moto2. Uh, Alex Marquez staying with them. Um, now, there were some rumours that began to circulate last weekend that he might be placed on the second uh, Avintia Ducati in MotoGP with some Australia Galicia sponsorship um, funding that move. We now know that's not going to happen, Dre. Um, but I think, in many ways, this might be better for Alex Marquez than if he had moved up, because he doesn't strike me as a rider that's MotoGP-ready either. Yeah, I, 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 honestly, I'm not sure if he's ever going to be ready. I mean, this is, what, year four of him in Moto in Moto2 now as a Moto2 rider, and he's still having the same, you know, mediocre days that he's had in you know, in, in the field in the past. It's just, it, it, it seems like Marquez is a guy that just hasn't ever really turned the corner in Moto2 where I could say, yeah, he's ready for a Moto2 seat. Now, don't get me wrong. Moto2 guys have been reached out before as guys that, you know, they, they you, you have doubts about whether they'll work in the top flight and they've worked out like uh, like Rabat to a degree who got off to a bit of a rocky start. Jack Miller jumped to class. Afi Siren, I think, has been very good 
in, in his rookie season, especially in the context of how hard he had to basically learn the bike, given he was given even less time than the average rookie. So it's not like these like deep dive in for Moto2 talent hasn't worked before, because it clearly has. But at the same time, like Alex Marquez just doesn't scream to me as a guy that's ready for that that that, that sort of jump in performance. And yeah, I think one more year of Mark VDS and see what see what the landscape looks like at the end of next season um, is probably a way to go. The problem is that a lot of these guys have already signed two year deals, so it makes me struggle to think where he's going to fit. I don't think there'll be a, a big silly season next year unless Valentino Rossi pulls a shock retirement, which I think is going to be unlikely. So. Uh, only only a couple of guys' contracts run out next season, like Cal Crutchlow and Xavier Simeon. So um, it's, it's, he's going to struggle to get on the MotoGP field for next year too, the way it's going. So we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. But um, yeah, I think this is the best move for all parties concerned. Marquez is a solid Moto2 rider, and I don't think he's anything more than that at the moment. So, you know, a MotoGP move doesn't really seem all that wise to me. Mm. One other piece of news to bring you before we talk about this weekend in the BSB round that's coming up, and that concerns MotoGP and the Factory Yamaha team. So it kind of brings us full circle to what we were talking about earlier on and the future of uh, Movistar Yamaha. More to the point, they won't be called that anymore. They'll be called Monster Yamaha MotoGP um, from next year. Shout out for the first time a commentator next year calls the Monster Yamaha Tech 3. I know I'm going to do it. Um, cause Me I'm so, too. Because I'm so used to you calling them Monster Yamaha Tech 3 because it's the Tech 3 team that are now going to be running KTMs with Red Bull sponsorship. And the That's going to be so weird. <laughs> and the factory Yamaha team will be running Monster logos. I mean, in many ways, it makes perfect sense um, for this to happen because, of course, Monster, one of Monster's most premier athletes in the world is Valentino Rossi. Um, he has his own Monster Energy clothing line. And, you know, in many ways, this makes perfect sense. And I'm sure the livery will be, will be terrific next year on that Yamaha. Um Ooh. But the, it's the knock-on effect that it has that has us scratching our heads straight because Movie Star have been so prominent in MotoGP for so many years, not just as sponsors to the MR team. They, of course, sponsored the uh, the Junior Cup that introduced Danny Pedrosa to us um, mm-hmm. in, in MotoGP at the start of the turn of the century. Uh, they are the current broadcasters in MotoGP in Spain. They are, you know, they're almost impossible to avoid and ignore in the MotoGP paddock whenever you're whenever you're in one. Um, speaking from experience, you you can't miss their studio in MotoGP paddocks, and you know they they are so enormous, enormous in terms of the the coverage and the manpower and the the numbers that they have. Um, and it's led some to ask the question. David Emmett's brought this up this week that Movistar no longer being Yamaha's factory title sponsor might actually signal the end of them as a broadcaster to MotoGP, which I would find astonishing. Yeah, there's been a lot of smoke in the air regarding that as a potential story. That yeah, if, if Movie Star are pulling out of sponsoring a factory team as, as as prestigious as Yamaha, one of the biggest and probably the biggest brand name on the grid, given they have Valentino Rossi as part of that team and has had now for what you know ten out of the last twelve years or something like that. It's 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 a big deal. And as much as a all Yamaha delivery excites me for next year. That is a puzzling knock-on. Um, like it's, it, it's going to be strange seeing how this plays out. I mean, I could get into a fifteen-minute rant or, or, or basically talk about you know the internet taking over sports coverage and you know broadcasters monopolizing whenever they can. But let's not forget that it's not it's not a like MotoGP has never been a juggernaut here and never will be. I don't think, especially given F1 has got such a massive predominant British following. In Spain, on the other hand, it's one of their biggest national sports. And as as Lewis mentioned, Movie Star is a feud entity. And 
it's the equivalent really of sky sports here and f1 coverage like it's the same level of just you know building a network of coverage around it and when danny pedroza announced his retirement last week the amount of spanish sporting stars that were laying out tributes for him like you know nba champion Pau gasol and um you know world cup winner and all-round footballing god andreas iniesta fernando alonso were all laying out massive danny pedroza because the bike racing is such a bigger thing in spain than it is compared to here so for movie star to potentially be backing out of the sport is massive. Um, it's, a, it's a big deal. And the infrastructure of broadcasting the sport in Spain could collapse as we know it. And that could be very, very telling for the sports coverage in Europe. And for Dorna as a brand, given it's the given, given Dorna are based in Spain, it's it's their entity and their the big main broadcaster could be about to bolt ship. So yeah, that, that that's one we'll have to we'll keep an eye on for you on, on Bike Live over over the, the coming weeks. Um, because you know it's, it's only smoke right now; it's only speculation at the minute. But uh, it, it's not exactly confidence inspiring to see one of the the biggest sponsors the sports got is uh, backing out of sponsoring uh, one of the biggest MotoGP brands out there and teams in general. I mean, yeah, it makes total sense. Well, well David Emmett in his <laughs> David in his piece on MotoMatters.com, I would do encourage you to check out his work over there. is brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. He does say that they are withdrawing. He says Movistar are not are withdrawing, not just from title sponsorship of MotoGP, but also from their role as MotoGP broadcaster in Spain, uh, which made it logical for Monster to step in. Of course, Monster will still want to be a title sponsor in MotoGP, given the exposure they get, and obviously having lost it at Tech 3, where better else to pick it up than at the factory team themselves, um, who have Valentino Rossi on board. Think of the merch. Um, but, of for, but from Movistar's point of view, uh, or from Spanish TV's point of view, as, as David Ebert points out, um, they were previously being broadcast by TVE in Spain, which are available to much more households than Movistar are, um, but they were unable to continue paying for the coverage when the Spanish economy tanked, um, as many economies did around the uh, the credit crunch years, sort of 2008 time. Um, and the Spanish economy is in a much better place now. Uh, there's no Spexit going on, as there is over here with Brexit. Um, so they're in a good position to perhaps take over the rights or some other broadcaster will no doubt pick this up um but whether it means the same level of broadcasting the same level of coverage same um detailed of coverage that you get for instance in this country um we'll have to wait and see um the other issue i have and we, again as dre said we could go on about this for ages but my fear as well and david emmett has voiced this fear and many others have is you do fear one day there is going to come a point where the energy drink money runs out. Um, yes. In that, not just because they won't pay for it anymore, but because their sponsorship will be banned. Um, we've already seen alcohol sponsorship banned. So, you know, it just runs in phases, doesn't it, Dre? We saw tobacco sponsorship yes. for a long period, then that stopped, then alcohol sponsorship stopped. Surely energy drink sponsorship is going to be next. So with so many teams yeah. in this paddock propped up by energy drink money, Movistar Yamaha, or Monster Yamaha, as they'll now be called, being the next... The, so many teams being so reliant on energy drink money worries me. It does. I mean, we have a, a massive entity in Leopard, which are quote-unquote an energy drink, even though you never see them on the on the shelves. Strange, that. But um, y- you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, if you look at the UK, for example, people are now starting to get ID'd for buying energy drinks. Was, like, they are terrible for you. There's no getting around it. They are huge health risk um they are riddled with sugar and but generally speaking bad shit you really shouldn't be drinking um and yeah if those guys that are listening to us who might be in the united states for example who don't know this like 
that you now need an ID to buy energy drinks in certain firms. You have to be like, 16 or over. Yeah, you, like they're not for kids, period. And anything that only adults can drink is going to be in finite supply in terms of in terms of money, in terms of sponsorship. And, and yeah, eventually, I, eventually I, governments aren't going to want you advertising that stuff. Yeah, agreed. I completely agree with you that you know I think the energy drink money is is going to have a finite supply, and and they are and a I massive. Hope, I just hope the panic yeah. is ready for when that moment comes. Indeed, because as we met, as as David said before, they're they're glorified sugar unit, they're glorified sugar water machines, and a lot of them are quote unquote used for money. But uh, it's one of those things where they're going to run out of gas eventually, and. Well, I know Red Bull sponsor every sporting event under the sun these days in some capacity, but you're right. Like, there's going to come a point where they're going to squeeze this down. Um, and when that happens, that's a huge part of the sport's money that's going to go. Red Bull has got a massive influence on MotoGP now. They sponsor the, the you know, Mark Marquez's team. They, they sponsor Mark Marquez as a rider, as well as Danny Pedrosa. They have the Rookies Cup named after them, let's not forget. Mm. Um, you know, they, they they basically paid Dorna to have their Grand Prix venue, the Red Bull ring in Spielberg, on the calendar. It's a huge, influential part of the sport. Same with Monster. How many... How many Top-tier motorsporting athletes are backed by Monster, including Lewis. I'm now on 40 million a year, Hamilton, given his extension he signed yesterday. Mm. It's, it's 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 massive. They have yeah, this huge... isn't a problem exclusive to MotoGP either. No, no, it's a, it's, it could be an F1 problem too because Red Bull obviously have their own factory F1 team. Essentially, that's one of the bigger teams in the paddock. The UFC Monster. is sponsored by Monster. There's, I mean, you could, yeah. you could reel them off. There are so many sports that... Obviously, aren't mm-hmm. completely propped up by energy drink money, but Linda, but relying a huge amount of their sponsorship income to energy drink money. And yeah, you do worry when this money dries up, and it will happen. It's not a case of if it'll happen. It's sure it will happen one day where this sponsorship is banned. Um, yeah, because you know, as as you say, you just need to look at history where tobacco sponsorship was banned eventually, alcohol sponsorship was banned eventually. Energy drink money will go the same way at some stage. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, most GP at some stage will have questions to answer in that respect, and uh, yeah, we just hope that they're preparing their answers for it when that moment comes. Um, looking ahead to this weekend, ironically, the uh, Brands Hatch BSB round, which hands out a trophy in the shape of a Monster Energy logo for the King of Brands, of uh, course, this weekend. Um, who is going to be the King of Brands? Don't all say Leon Haslam at once um, for for this weekend. It's the first round oh, around the Grand Prix layout. Um, this year, and it does give us a bit of a, an in, indication of what's going to happen later in the season. Because of course, the season finale takes place at this round, and it's the first time that Leon Haslam has gone into that dreadfully frightening corner at the end of the back straight since it nearly killed him at the end of last year um, in, in BSB. Um, so he's no doubt going to want to win this weekend to try and put that ghost to rest. But um, it, it's it's wide open, isn't it? This weekend, I mean, Josh Brooks went well today. Um, in what were admittedly mixed conditions um, on Friday at Brands, but um, we are—we've said this a couple of times. We're getting into that crucial stage of the season where, if you're going to make a move and lay down a showdown spot, now is the time to make it. Yeah, I, I, I see you in the corner, Josh Brooks. This is your moment right here. Um, I cannot stress how important this is because he goes very well round, especially the full circuit. 
And um, it's a big week for Yamaha, their 20th anniversary week as well for, for, for GP racing. And they're running the gorgeous replica um, R1 liveries this weekend. They unveiled them tonight uh, um, on, on Bennett's Twitter page. And uh, yeah, they, they are as advertised, very pretty indeed. But uh, I, I, I look at this weekend and I circle Josh Brooks as the dude who could win both races here this weekend. Haslam's obviously looking very Haslam-esque. He's been very strong everywhere all season long, and he's probably favorite going in. But I, I'm circling Brooks as the guy to watch this weekend as a guy that could easily win both races. And really, if he does, he'll probably be cementing a showdown spot in the process. Um, 50 points would be a big game changer. Reminds me a lot of what, what Hickman did last year when he suddenly had that big weekend at Cadwell Park and you know, next thing you know, he's in the show now, and he, he you know, rubber stamped his, his his spot in there. So, all it needs is one big weekend, and you can get in there. And you know, I think Brooks, I think Danny Buchan could be another guy to watch out for as well, given his his very strong recent run of form too. Um, and you know, look for Bradley Ray to try and get some form back as well, given he's had a he had a bit sloppy since since that since that dream start in Donington. So. There's a lot of guys to look out for, but those are the three that stick out to me as potential threats to Haslam and just the showdown in general. Yeah, it is moving time in British Superbikes now. Indeed. People who want to get in the showdown are going to have to get a move on now. Whatever happens, we will review it all uh, this time next week on episode 70 of Bike Live here on Monospot 101. Uh, we will break down the Brands Hatch BSB uh, Grand Prix round of the British Superbike Championship. Between now and then, though, um, Motorsport 101 continues with episode 152. Um, if you're Sebastian Vettel, Formula 1 comes home this weekend, um, not last weekend, um, with the German Grand Prix. I guess Mercedes will say the same too. So someone's going to be celebrating a home victory, Dre. It'll be Mercedes or Vettel. Who's it going to be? Probably Mercedes. Um, <laughs> I say this every time, and yeah. yet it keeps finding ways to surprise me at this point. I didn't think he was going to win the British Grand Prix, and yet here we are. Um, I'd keep an eye out on Max Verstappen. He's looking very strong around here, and he, he's been good here in the past as well. I think Max is a guy that could cause a shock upset this weekend. You heard it here first, but uh, be the other whatever happened... Yeah, yeah. Daniel Ricciardo started from the back, having taken, his, taken the expected engine change penalty. He thought it was going to come a little bit later, to be honest. But yeah, Ricciardo's taking it this weekend, so Ricciardo will be starting from the back. Those that are fans of F1 2017 videos on YouTube will probably like the amount of dive bombs that will be seen yeah. from Ricardo from the back, probably passing 14 cars at once into the hairpin on lap one. Look forward to that. But whatever happens during Hockenheim at this weekend, uh, we'll be covering it on episode 152 of Motorsport 101 with me, King, and RJ. Here's hoping for a home win for Sebastian, but... Uh, yeah, given that Lewis Hamilton is complaining about uh, Ferrari engine power again, who knows what could happen? And that's been the beauty of this season. It's like you think something's going to happen, and then something else pulls the rug out from underneath you. So it should be a fun weekend. Looking forward to seeing it. Turns out. Yeah, I've st I'm still, in, in the back of my mind, I'm still tipping Ferrari to win this weekend. They have become the ultimate sandbag merchants on a Friday, haven't they? They um, have. This they really year. Have. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was still wouldn't be surprised if they rock up. I'm saying this on Friday night before you all chime in and say, oh, yeah, they did that already yesterday. But I, we said this no, on Friday. No, no, I promise you, it's um, 9.20 so, on July 20th. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still expecting to rock up in FP3 and finish one and two. So we'll, we'll see. Um, whatever happens, though, um, we will, as Joey mentioned, review it all on episode 152 of Monospot 101. Um, next week, reviewing the German Grand Prix at Hockenheim. We'll be back next week. Um, for episode 70 of Bike Live as we break down the Brands BSB round. But this week we uh, saw Mark Marquez extend his undefeated streak 
at the Saxon Ring. He hit cloud 93. We will see you in a week's time. From Dre and myself, it's bye-bye.